1: June seventeenth, twenty seventeen, and this is Psychology Is Dead over on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast feed. I'm Quentin Moody. With me is Brock, and I played Brock's favorite band, Lupe Fiasco. And <laughs> no one's gonna get that joke. <laughs> I know, and that is the exact purpose. It's the point. <laughs> that is the point. So, Brock, what I want you to do is name me your five favorite Lupe Fiasco songs.
2: Brother, I uh, <laughs> um, uh, for one, uh, the dog days are over that whatever that song is called. Yeah, that, uh, that's a great you, one. You, know, you know the one? I don't. I couldn't. Do you do lasers? Is that I hated, Lupe? I hated lasers. Okay. I don't, dude. I couldn't tell you five Blue Bay songs. I'm yeah, surprised. I feel like you um, People have said that to me before, and I, I tried. Like, I got a big argument with a friend in college about like stuff he was doing. And, like, he, he he was, like, doing sort of, um, like, he was doing, like, work in activism that I really appreciated, but he was just going about it in such a way that I, I don't know, he turned me off of it. Um, but I think, I think I've changed as a person since, and I would look back on those sorts of things in a better light today. So, I, I guess I should look more into Lupe Fiasco.
1: But this is not a podcast about Lupe Fiasco.
2: Sadly not.
1: Or Florence the Machine, but... <laughs> This episode is titled The Art of Age and this is a little bit of a tricky one since it's not specifically or solely about aging. It Uh also goes with the idea of getting wiser as you get more experience and things along those lines. But either way, it's about performers growing Mm -hmm. either gracefully as they age, not so gracefully or in a way that well, at least confuses me as a viewer, sometimes confuses Brock, and other people have very conflicting opinions on other wrestlers as they get older, and the way I want to start this off is, when we did the Top 100, you mentioned not really, like, ever experiencing someone getting old or getting older right in front of you when we talked about Rey Mysterio. Is that Would that be correct in... Um, what I'm saying there, am I
2: getting that I don't. I, I don't um, recall. That was a 10-hour podcast. That, fair enough. But <laughs> it was I, many months ago. But when we
1: talked about Rey Mysterio versus uh, Prince Puma from uh, uh-huh. Ultima Lucha Dose, mm-hmm. you said something about it being a little weird for you to watch Rey Mysterio because Rey is someone that you liked a lot when you were a kid, and now seeing him now
2: mm-hmm. and
1: not being the same person is hard for you to do.
2: Yeah, I think. I think... Sort of this is coming back to me. Um, I think about like a lot of my favorite wrestlers and their guys who are already old today or, uh, guys who have died. I think about people like Jumbo Saruta and Shinya Hashimoto, who I never got to see, uh, get old because they died before I even got into wrestling. Um, and so for the most part, I haven't watched someone age that much during my time in wrestling. Rey Mysterio was one of like a small few, even though I didn't know him when he was very young uh danny havoc who just retired recently is another guy who i've i've i practically watched throughout all of his 20s and now he's he's a much older and a much different man and is getting out of the business and um i think i'm getting to the point in in my life in my fandom that i'm starting to see that more yeah
1: would there be any other aspects of uh Things you enjoy watching, things you enjoy listening to, whether it be actors, musicians, athletes, Mm -hmm. Were you ever sat through and watched someone that you really liked from a young age get older and maybe not be the same person, whether it be in a good or bad way.
2: Yeah, musicians is definitely the one uh, that comes to mind first. I think of like the Mountain Goats, all those guys and... Um, specifically Mike Kinsella from American Football as well as a couple other um couple other projects he does a lot i think about like how those two people have navigated from being uh relatively young people that they weren't necessarily young when i got to know them but have grown older and have uh found themselves married and have had children and have seen their lives move on as they've grown artistically as musicians and and things have just changed for them and i've and i've been able to see that because i've you know i've i've loved both of them for well over 10 years now um maybe i wouldn't say stephen king i didn't know him when he was real young like i didn't i probably didn't read a stephen king novel until he was like 50 or so um i'm not sure who else but musicians definitely fall in this category
1: I know, uh, we made the joke out of a Lu- out of the Lupe Fiasco thing, but another reason why I did go with Lupe Fiasco is that I think he's like the perfect example of someone that I was always really into as a kid. Sure. And while he still does good stuff now, he's oh. a lot different as a person and how he goes about things. Uh-huh. Um, his approach to music. Um, at first, like he was kind of the savior. In a way of like mainstream rap, because you gotta remember this is like the era, like a little after Kanye West first released college college dropout and everything was starting to slowly change. Mm -hmm. So Lupe was part of that class. And then as time goes on, he gets alienated by uh, record label politics and whatever else is going on. His approach to music also changes. So Lupe is like the guy that would be like the most glaring example, at least for me
2: uh someone else i would put in this category for myself would be donald glover who i've seen like from literally when he was in college through now into his 30s and how much his life has dramatically altered during that period of time
1: yeah i remember watching um his skits on youtube when he was first (laughs) yeah Derek (laughs) comedy (laughs) yeah Derek comedy um when he first started releasing mixtapes um I know the first one that comes to mind when it's like one of his early projects is Mm cul-de-sac. But, yeah, seeing where he is now with Atlanta, um, being Lando Carisian in the upcoming Star Wars movie, um, casted as Simba in the upcoming Lion King, um, there was still the campaign for him to be in the new Spider-Man, but I'm not sure if that ever happened. Um... Yeah, he's a person where even if it's not, like, he got better, he got mm. more successful, and it's hard not to be happy for the dude, too. Uh, yeah, I
2: wouldn't I wouldn't say he got better. I think his, his best work is still cul-de-sac, but, like, he did grow both in, I would say in maturity in some ways, but um, more so than that, I think he got to the point where he has become fulfilled, and that makes me happy.
1: Right. So the idea of performers getting better with age experience Mm -hmm. makes people grow and learn i've always wondered how valid that was Mm -hmm. considering how many people peaked early on in their careers sure so where do you stand on uh, age and experience make someone better and is that always like necessarily the truth like some people think like you only really reach your peak as a wrestler when you're in your thirties.
2: I wouldn't say always, I don't like to deal in extremes all that much, but I'm definitely firmly in the camp that like, you don't get good at something until you sunk a ton of time into it. There's the, um, Oh, Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hours principle that he came up with. I think he came up with it, or at least he popularized it. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily true. And I'm not sure if the math on that like lines up, um but i think there's a lot of truth to that sort of idea that you have to sink so much time into doing something over and over and over again consistently for like years and years and years before you actually become like really good at it whether it's sports whether it's wrestling whether it's stand up comedy is something i firmly believe uh most people don't get good at until they're like 40 and there are a few outliers who would say otherwise but they are exceptions to the case um writing is another good example. It's there's a lot of things that like it just takes time to not necessarily get the to get the fundamentals down of a specific like type of art, but to really feel how that type of art works, I think takes a long time.
1: Now, obviously like doing something hands-on is going to bring mm-hmm. a different kind of experience. But what about people who were really into something at an early age, not necessarily doing it, but as a fan. Mm-hmm. As so, a fan. So, if you're studying wrestling or studying music, studying art, poetry, stand-up comedy, like what? If you're studying it from that young, and then eventually you're able to get your hands on it and do something uh tangible with the tools you're given, is it possible that that experience as a fan can lead to you getting something earlier than usual? Mm-hmm.
2: It most certainly can help um and like for the most part i I don't think it's fair to say that being a passionate fan of the thing that you were doing uh is a negative aspect of your art um at the same time, like I think it might it might lead you to some like bad habits or to uh to only think of um, your approach in one certain way. But for the most part, I think like just the time you spend as a fan is still time spent with that medium, even if you're not creating. Um, and like, it's a different sort of experience than the act of creation itself. But I mean, it, it, it doesn't hurt to immerse yourself for an even longer period of time.
1: Cause the way I've always heard anyone in their sort of profession phrase it is that while well, you're a fan, you can take all this time to study and absorb Mm. all the information you possibly can. Once you're in a certain field of work, um, something usually art-related, once you're like so consumed into making your own work better, you're not taking the time to study and learn as much as you were before. Mm. So I think in that case, when someone is so immersed in their own career, that maybe they do tend to stagnate or cap off because they're not constantly learning for like um, searching more yeah because you can
2: you can do something for a long period of time but doing something isn't necessarily the same um activity as growing within mm-hmm. that field like it, it's it's not something you could just like turn on and off like oh hey today I'm actually gonna grow as an artist uh, but it's <laughs> it's something it's something that does take a whole lot of work um and like I'm I'm pretty firmly of the mind that like being a wrestling fan can have really bad effects on you as a wrestler. Um, For the the most part, there are certain people like Brian Danielson is a good example. Chris Hero, I think, is a fairly good example of people who are like students of the game who became incredible wrestlers. But for the most part, I think it's a a harmful thing. Even more like a recent
1: example that you could go to um, Zack Sabre Jr. Jonathan Gresham. Guys sure, like sure, 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 sure. You know, they're okay. kind of in the same vein as those guys.
2: Uh, But uh, I think it's weird because, like, regardless of how you feel about that in wrestling, I don't hear that sort of sentiment shared in other forms of art. Really? <laughs> and I, I was wondering how you felt about that.
1: What exactly? That being a fan can lead to you maybe not being the best exactly at that yeah. thing?
2: Yeah, like someone, someone growing up listening to Kanye West... Uh, and being a huge fan of Kanye West somehow impacts them negatively when they decide to become a musician.
1: Yeah, it's weird. A lot Wrestling has a lot of things that, like, specifically I've only seen wrestling fans totally. do as totally. negative things. Um, one is definitely being a fan, and that somehow being a bad thing. <laughs> Another one is uh, the whole um, air date versus when it happened, which is like,
2: only no, you're fans, you're only in wrestling. the wrong about this. I know, but still, like only wrestling fans do that. Okay, yeah, <laughs> like that's, uh, that's the, like, the, like the spelling of indie is another good example. Yeah, the
1: spelling of indie for some reason, wrestling fans want to spell it i n d y, which literally makes zero sense. And I, I don't care it. who you are if you listen to this show. If you spell indie with a y, I want you to Turn stop it listening. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, I don't, I never fully got it, and we just did the episode on AJ Styles where we talked about how him not being uh-huh. a fan helped him.
2: Uh-huh, very much so.
1: But I don't listen to a band or listen to a rapper or listen to a singer and, like, I can hear their influences, but it's not like, hmm, you're not good because you obviously grew up listening to Erica Badu and Jill Scott. Like, <laughs> like, is I think a, ma- like, is that a bad thing that they like Erica Badu?
2: Sure. I think maybe a part of it is is the performative aspect of it. Though I'm not sure if this would necessarily extend to theater and acting in general, um, but I, I think there is something to be said about like about drawing from other people's performances as opposed to performing how you naturally would.
1: I think that I think like a good analogy would be like being a cover band. Like you're obviously mm. doing, you know, you can do. Iron Maiden or Aerosmith songs. And you and can, you can do,
2: you, you could do that well. You could execute
1: that well. You could do that well. You could be the best Aerosmith cover band in the world. But when it comes to making your own original music, you may not mm. be as good at, like, you know, kind of put together your own thoughts because you're so focused on being that sure. other group or other person. But I want to get to the main topic at hand. And before we go, like, run through this, list of a whole bunch of wrestlers we accumulated of (laughs) either did well kind of confuse us or we just think transition poorly flat out are there anyone or is there anyone on this like not on the list that's a little bit more contemporary that you've seen in the last few years that you think would fit well into they've transitioned well into a more veteran place as they've gotten older
2: specifically people who have transitioned well?
1: Yeah, we're going to do two well, I have two questions. This is okay. the one who they do well the and okay. next one.
2: Well, some of them are on this list like guys like Chris Hero here um and my personal fave, Mako Satomura. Um I'm not sure if anyone else comes to mind because like it like we were just talking about how like you do generally naturally progress as you do a thing more and once someone has been wrestling for 10 12 15 years generally they do have like a uh a a wealth of knowledge and experience to draw from and usually that makes them better in some cases but in wrestling i think for a variety of reasons um some of which are just like completely economic um And some of which are just like cultural, like, I think people have an incentive to not do as well artistically as they could, because it is so much easier and so much smarter to just do something that uh, gets a good reaction and gets you the most money.
1: Right. And that's something that we're going to cover here. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that I've been tossing around in my mind is like the idea that some people think like stagnation is the same thing as getting worse mm-hmm. and i know some people have the mindset of if you're not constantly getting better then you're getting worse which which is, is weird because like, think... there's like no middle ground there
2: <laughs> yeah there's not it's, like, a think... real
1: extreme talking point
2: i think it's very important to note that um we have a very different viewpoint of this situation as fans than wrestlers do themselves and I can 100% understand a wrestler thinking if I'm not constantly getting better then I am getting worse. Um, some of like the best wrestlers in the history of wrestling have had that sort of mindset. Uh, some of them also went on to kill their family, which is not a great thing, but I mean you, you take, you take the good with the bad, I suppose. Um, but like, it's also important to note that while we may value as fans, a wrestler getting better artistically uh in whatever like narrow um viewpoint we have of what that means getting better artistically i i think for a lot of wrestlers who do who do this just as their job if they can like coast or what we perceive to be coasting uh if they can just coast and get on by and make good money on on what they're doing and if that's an easy thing then that is doing well and getting better i think in their mind
1: yeah and like and like unless someone comes out and says it, we'll never directly know what it was like for certain sure. people in their transition. For instance, Joey Ryan is like one of the only people who's like pretty openly uh-huh. about this, making money, making as much money as he can. And when you watch early Joey Ryan and PWG, like yeah, <laughs> he's having better matches. He's you know from a technical, artistic whatever word you want to throw in at standpoint, he's having better matches, a star he, rating standpoint, maybe, but he's not making the most possible money. He can, he's not sponsored um by <laughs> porn and all these things where he can, yeah. uh, you know, toss people by the dick.
2: And, and, and he's getting hurt more too. He's taking, he's doing mustache rides off the top rope through a table. Like it's it, that, that kind of thing hurts. And so if you can like, dumb down your wrestling with air quotes there uh if you can dumb down your wrestling and make more money doing it then sure as hell should do that
1: now let's get into the people that we think transition well and this is a pretty interesting group of people we put together (sighs) here and the first one i think probably came to both of our minds i'm not Mm -hmm. sure but it was jumbo saruta Mm -hmm. and jumbo is someone that over the last year or so, I've really started to take more of a liking to. Mm-hmm. He wasn't exactly my guy when I started getting into him. Whenever I did, but I think that's because there's like so like distinct periods of Jumbo, like almost like three different periods of the guy. Uh-huh. That when you when you're not watching it, like I'm not I'm not gonna say you have to watch Jumbo's career chronologically to get him, but like. I think the... I think you
2: do, but you don't have
1: to. <laughs> you don't have to, but like I think, like he's one of the people that where you watch his career from beginning to end, uh-huh. you get a real sense of what he became, even when it came down to his um final days after um contracting um Hep B.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But what are your thoughts on Jumbo as he aged from debuting in the early seventies to when he retired?
2: in the early nineties. Well, he retired in 99. Um, but his serious career, yeah, ended serious career. 92. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after that, he wrestled, I can't imagine he wrestled super often and was always in like those opening tags, those just comedy and old man tags. Um, but, uh, yeah, Jumbo's someone who certainly came to mind as soon as we started talking about this sort of project. He's my second favorite wrestler ever, and is someone who I really do think embodies a lot of the qualities I appreciate in wrestling, one of which is getting better and adapting as you get older. But I think it's important to note that like I think on I think as a whole, Jumbo did transition well as he got into the later portion of his career, but specifically it's because he didn't earlier. In like the mid '80s, when Choshu shows up and revolutionizes all Japan and sort of uh, Japanese wrestling as a whole, uh, Jumbo was most certainly left behind and like was falling behind in quality uh, behind guys like Choshu and Tenru. Um, and for like I don't know whatever whatever reason, whether it be like personal pride or like a need to rise to the occasion after Choshu and Tenru left and sort of like hold the banner of all japan uh jumbo got way better in like 88 and 89 and proceeded to have uh what i think were like the four best years of his career in which he's like this surly old man fighting to hold his place in the world uh and feuding against the super generation of the next guys who are going to take his place
1: what's interesting is that i really like early jumbo like i really love watching him
2: like, Again,
1: 70s Jumbo? Yeah, 70s Jumbo. I love watching him against Bach Winkle, against Billy Robinson, against Mil Mascaris, against Baba. Like, I love him. I love watching him against these guys, against Dory,
3: mm-hmm. against
1: Terry. Like, he's doing great stuff so early on, and he's one of those guys that, we talk about like prodigies now, when like Tyler mm. Bate is like on the um, tip of everybody's yeah. tongue when it comes to guys that are like super great so young, but Jumbo was a guy that came from the Olympics, got Mm -hmm. trained and he was just so
2: it's so crazy too, because like he got into college playing basketball and then saw athletic wrestling, amateur wrestling, and was like, hey, I should try that (laughs) and and didn't get in. Uh the guys in the school bullied bullied him because of his name, Tomomi, which is um a real feminine name or close to a feminine name (laughs) in Japanese. Uh he got bullied out of the team uh, and so he went and joined, like, an um, in the, also an amateur team, but, like, not affiliated to a school. And he did so well there that the the college team was like, oh, yeah, you, you can come and join us. And he was, if my memory serves correctly, he was trying to get into – he was trying to train for the 74 Olympics and was doing so well that he actually got into the 1970 Olympics and did very well there and was, like, immediately – caught up by giant baba as he was trying to make all japan and was their first signee and was like just this absolute phenom months into his career and and had very little any kind of wrestling experience before that even he was mostly just a basketball guy
1: yeah i believe you had said you had found something and i don't know if you posted it on twitter if it was just in the group chat where you were like he was wrestling dory funk in 54 minute (laughs) matches
2: uh four months into his
1: career or maybe it's two it was, yeah, it was some two months into
2: his career, like, wrestling stupid number
1: in, like, yeah. nearly hour matches.
2: <laughs> and doing, by all accounts, well. Yeah, yeah. like, because, like, the um,
1: Jumbo Okada thing has been, like, so yeah. talked about to death, like, the last few
3: weeks. <laughs> uh huh.
1: One thing that I think is, like, important to note about Jumbo is that he had such a great support system mm. early on. And so. that having these kind of people around him constantly pushing him to get better, putting him in big spots where he's not where he, he has to swim. He can't sink he can't sink here exactly, but I don't think that when you're wrestling Terry and Dory and Bachwinkle, um and Billy, Billy Robinson, Robinson. Yeah. uh Von Eriks, Flares. Jack Briscoe. Like that you're (laughs) you're being like a given a who's who of people to wrestle. So he has to live up to the standard, but look at everything he's been, he's been given there. Uh But once once we transition into the eighties and Ricky Choshu comes in and I've already talked at a great length about how much I love that entire feud. Mm -hmm. And that's where we see the transformation of Jumbo from this NWA style wrestler to he has to defend his home now. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a little bit more uh, violent, hostile, aggressive than most of his earlier work is. And then, like you said, once we get past that, because Tenryu leaves, Choshu leaves, and he is the last guy standing. Well, they left Yoshiaki Yatsu there, too. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah, they just left him. But Jumbo now has to take up the mantle and not only fight... To keep All Japan relevant. But also fight to keep his spot. Against the younger generation. Mm-hmm. And that While I can see why. You would think. His run from. 89 to 92. Are his best years. I think. I think it's maybe easier to call it. His mo- like the most fun work he's ever done. Because he is so animated. Uh-huh. he is so aggressive. He's so loud. That it's almost like you're not even watching the same person
2: that's i think that's sort of what i'm getting at with like this idea that he was best later on is is that like he i don't know he had all these little touches that weren't necessarily there early in his career because he was playing such a different character he wasn't he wasn't like this surly old man he was this like bright-eyed bush-tailed young kid who could like take on the world um because like he was he was living the gimmick you know like that's what he was and And, as he grows older, like not only does he just change as a person, but like the world around him changes, and like that that has a profound effect on him and seeing that sort of change is is something I really appreciate in wrestling and and I think it's why later on seeing seeing that change like way on his shoulders in matches and seeing it affect him as he's going throughout spots is is what i really really appreciate and
1: while like some other people from the all Japan system, like were put in similar positions later on, like Masawa, like Kabashi. Um, if you carry it all, o- if you carry it over to Noah, I don't think those guys, well, more specifically Masawa did that good of a job expressing that he was in a different world than he was yeah. before. Because with Masawa, once he becomes Masawa and gets rid of the tiger mask to um, Persona, he, yeah, he has like moments where he's kind of brash because he's a young punk going up against the system, which is Jumbo Saruta. Um uh-huh. Every settles into being Masawa, he's just Masawa till the end of time.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a there's a certain stoicism to his work. Yeah,
1: yeah, and while Jumbo had that same kind of stoicism for a very long time, I think it speaks to the. I'm not sure exactly how to phrase it because it also come uh, almost comes out of necessity that all japan had to change
3: uh-huh. after
1: losing those guys and even after masawa uh leaves all japan and forms noah it doesn't ever feel like he changes which is just like a oh, big
2: thing against him when it comes to a wrestler who transition mm. well and it's, and it's like, it's not like the world around him didn't change. Noah was like a fundamentally different promotion than All Japan was and, and featured such more of an eclectic, weird group of individuals, especially guys who were challenging for the GHC heavyweight title. Um, and you sort of see that with like Kobashi's big two year reign, though I still don't think Kobashi navigated that, that, I don't think he navigated those waters nearly so well as Jumbo did. Oh, no, not, not at all. But like, especially with Misawa, I, I just, I I don't see I, I don't see that, that weight of the world on his shoulders, and part of it is because like I think he felt it in real life, and he wanted to hide that. Like he was so passionate about Noah, and was so scared about it, like failing, that he kept himself on top because he knew that could draw, and it did draw, and it. it and I don't know. There's a lot of problems that came because of that, but his his intentions were pure. And I'm
1: um, speaking as someone who has sort of a similar career trajectory as Jumbo to some extent because the peaks he hits as far as his drawing record and him as a top star aren't nearly the same but Junakiyama coming in as this you know another prodigy this guy that as soon as he debuts in the All Japan ring everyone's like oh this guy is really really good. Mm-hmm. You know, after you see the pillars in their early work, you know, when you watch early Kawada, early Kabashi, early Masaba, early Tawa even, they're good. They're often really good, but Junakiyama jumped off the page like immediately when he first shows up.
2: And and I think it's important to note that he jumped off the page along with those four guys who are incredible all-time workers. And if you're able to like stand up against that like greatest of shadows, like, it, it's really something.
1: Yeah, and his is a little bit different than Jumbo's in the fact that you can see that early All Japan is built around the idea of building Jumbo. Like, uh-huh. yeah, Baba is still there. It,
2: it, the company literally was founded like that. He was their first signee, yeah. Yeah,
1: so it's built around
2: Jumbo. And not. I'm not going to say supporting characters, because that
1: would uh, discredit how much Terry Funk and others meant to all Japan being successful, but it is Jumbo and the other guys. And whereas Junakiyama when he comes in, we already have this established presence of Mitsuhara Masawa on top, Kenta Kabashi, Toshiaki Kawada, Stan Hansen, Doctor Death, Akira Tawe. So when he comes in, he has a lot to have to navigate through mm-hmm. because these guys are well into their prime. It's not like Jumbo, where he came in, where jo- where Baba was already like, "All right, I'm giving this to you." Uh huh. So, what do you think of June's early work, considering that he had to wait a really long time before he was taken <laughs> seriously in the promotion? Well, not taken uh-huh. seriously, but you know, when you're in a promotion with Masawa, like you're, it's really hard for you to like break past a certain level.
2: Mm -hmm. It took a very long time And and it literally took going to a different promotion and, and one of the most important people in that promotion, uh, becoming very ill and having to take years off of his career. It took that to get Akiyama on top. But like, um, as we mentioned, like Akiyama comes in and he's, he's, he's like fifth or sixth at best on the rung of like native talent. Uh, when he comes into all Japan. And so because of that, he's so vulnerable, which is, um, I think a theme that extends throughout the entirety of his career. Um, A lot of people in Japanese wrestling are like, they're sort of portrayed as like, I want to be the strongest and I'm always going to be the strongest, but Akiyama never quite was that. He was someone who was like constantly one-upped by other wrestlers, especially guys like Kobashi and Misawa. Um, and so he had to like navigate around that sort of had to like, um strategically win matches and 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 get around his betters, I suppose you could say. Um, and so with that, like I think it's we, we talk so much about like Junakiyama being like this phenomenal rookie, which he really was, um, probably the best rookie in all of wrestling history. And he grows up into like a fine A plus wrestler. Um but like I think there's always going to be in the back of your head, even though I don't necessarily believe this to be true, I think always in the back of your head, there's going to be some some semblance of disappointment because, like, theoretically, the best rookie of all time should grow into the best wrestler of all time, right? Right. On paper. And, and, and Junakiyama is not, in my opinion at least, the best wrestler of all time. And so, like, even though I like him a lot and he's uh, a fantastic wrestler and definitely, I think, someone who got better with age, especially in regards to, like, um, drawing me in emotionally as a viewer he is something of a disappointment due to where he began and i think you could argue that jumbo was like that too
1: to be fair to akiyama i do think that he's not the greatest wrestler of all time but i ha- also had him on um number four on my GWE sure list that's pretty high <laughs> and like i love akiyama i think like if i have him number four um, he's who got me into pearl i have him above like all the pillars above Jumbo, yeah. about like above above all those guys. Yeah. But I think the middle period of his career like almost gets kind of lost.
2: Which he, period is that?
1: Um I would say from about 2005 to about okay. like that like middle stretch. And then once we get into the 2010s he returns to All yeah. Japan. Yeah. And he gets even grumpier and I think <laughs> yes, like, he's maybe the best like grumpy veteran ass kicker ever, which is like I think it's a great thing that he's possibly the greatest rookie ever, and possibly the best at ever giving a rookie beatdown. Uh huh. Um, and I think one notable example of how good he is transitioning with age, knowing that he's not the top star anymore, and helping make younger guys is the work he does with Kento Miyahara. Sure. And Kento not having exactly a stellar career coming over and them initially trying to do a slow build with him um, mm-hmm. teaming in with Goshi Ozaki, um, having them, fa- having them face Akiyama and Amori and having a stellar match. Um, one of the best matches of 2015 that uh, doesn't get talked about that much anymore, but Akiyama beats down Miyahara, but it isn't in a way to, bury him or make him look bad it's to give Miyahara a mountain to climb later Mm -hmm. on as he grows as he gets better and i think that's something that june was always just so good at he would be able to beat and destroy certain guys like um a leona from fortune dream (laughs) last year leona a very inexperienced person yeah um very inexperienced not the case of someone that was a super rookie at all Mm. But Junakiyama faces Leona and has what might still be to this day the best match of Leona's career, and there's Who's just Leona getting his shit kicked in.
2: Whose kid is he? Fujinami's kid? Yeah, Fujinami's kid. Like you would you would think <laughs> again you would, It's not it's not fair to judge the the sons and daughters of wrestlers, uh, and compare them to their to their parents, but like you would think something would have rubbed off. I mean, like, but I mean, then again, Leona is also not a full-time wrestler. Like he's just a lawyer who does wrestling sometimes. And you know, I can't disparage him for just not excelling at something he does a couple times a year.
1: But what do you think of like this current state of Yunakiyama? He's not—he he's, said himself—he's not going to challenge for the Triple Crown, I believe, anymore. Not going to be in mm. the Champions Carnival. He's oh, really, that's a bummer. hes really stepping back and. While a lot of people were still like clinging on to stardom as they got older, Junakiyama has been the guy where he has no qualms about falling back and just trying to be as best of a um, president, vice president, or whatever he is, of all Japan as he can.
2: When you said that, I thought you meant that with Io Shirai and Kairi Hojo leaving Rasio Gao's promotion, <laughs> that, that Junaki Junakiyama was going to make the jump. <laughs> getting to Joshi. <laughs> Junakiyama versus uh, Hanakamura. <laughs> oh, that'd be that'd be something. Um, but I really like this this uh this period of Junakiyama's career. Um, because like a it's it's a type of wrestling I really love a lot. Surly old man beats up young punks. Um, makes them pay for their insolence. Like I really like that a lot. Uh, but more so than that, I I, I enjoy that like I can see how he's still vulnerable while being this supreme ass kicker who, if he really wants to can take down anybody in the world. And I think that's an interesting presence to have in a promotion. And I appreciate it a lot. I'm saying, I'm saying appreciate a lot on this podcast. (laughs) I, I was, I was recently. And by recently, I mean, literally earlier today, I've become obsessed with this etymology podcast that slate puts on called, uh, Lexicon Valley. And it has made me realize how much I reuse certain words, and I've become very paranoid about it.
1: <laughs> um, I remember you kept saying indignant on the AJ Styles podcast. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet I did. <laughs> it's a <laughs> good word, but... I think the gimmick should be that you have a favorite word every podcast.
2: That'd be fun. <laughs> write, our listeners, write in and guess <laughs> which is my favorite word.
1: <laughs> now, there's one person in particular that I think actually gets a lot better as he gets older That we have on this list. And that person would be Yoshihiro Takayama. Mm. Now, how do you feel about this? Cause I like like the initial Takayama stuff that we get early on of him, but are man, you
2: talking, are you talking all Japan or are you talking UWO fi
1: Both. Like I like him in both. Okay. But when we get to like, you know, that Noah run, uh, huh. And he's in these GHC title matches against Masawa, Ogawa, and he's facing Kenta and just absolutely destroying him. Faces Naoki Sano. Like, mm-hmm. he is absolutely stellar at that, po- at that point in his career. And it's not to say that he wasn't good when he was in UWFI or All Japan. Uh-huh. But it's like, he really hones in and becomes just an absolute monster.
2: Mm-hmm. he's um first and foremost Takayama's one of my favorite wrestlers like probably top 20 favorite wrestler for me someone i really love um and he's someone who i think best uh exemplifies the concept that we brought up earlier of like just getting better with time mm-hmm. of of putting the work in because i don't think he's ever like substantially changed up his style or anything or like like just dramatically altered or uh evolved in any specific way but like he's someone who had like bare bones um really rock solid fundamentals and stuck to them and got better at them over time and inf- and um infused like a big personality that 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 grew and and uh fleshed out a little bit more as he got older and as he just wrestled more and i think by the time he gets into his probably his 30s i would think and by the time he gets to noah he's like awesome he's just a really great wrestler he doesn't necessarily excel in one way or another but it's just like so fundamentally good like a solid 80 across the board
1: now two guys that i think are actually really similar in how their careers have panned out where they're still going at such an alarming pace and rate that you almost forget how old they are sometimes uh-huh. And that's Masaki Mochizuki and Negro Casas.
2: Sure, 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 sure.
1: Now, with Casas, he's 57, I believe now. Jesus Christ. <laughs> still going in trios matches. Um, uh-huh. Injuries got up to him last year. Uh-huh. But for the most part, the guy is still Negro Casas. He's still super charismatic. He's still the sneakiest, coolest, smoothest dude on the planet. And uh-huh. that's not ever going to change. But... His body still can hold up, and he can still do these amazing sequences with Blue Panther, who we'll mention in a few short minutes here. But Negro Casas, what do you think about how, when he's young and first showing up, um, I think the earliest footage we might have of him is the Santo hair match. But I also have.
3: I feel seen, like there's something uh, earlier.
1: I've seen him versus Fuerza from '86. Yeah. But, and because they're like so, like. With a lot of lucha guys, there's chunks missing mm. of their careers, so it's hard to be definitive when it comes to some of these guys. But with Negro Casas, he is like probably the best example of a guy that still goes on and is still great. It can still be like a main event level star, but mm-hmm. is also super unselfish and doesn't want to hold the younger generation back.
2: Yeah, I, I think in, in the same way as someone like Takiyama, I think Negro Casas really um, exemplifies this idea of just like sticking to fundamentals and like getting really, really good at them. Um, and what puts Casas over the top is the fact that he does, even though like guys like Takiyama have a good character, Casas is just so charismatic, like just so effortlessly enjoyable to watch, um, that it, it turns, it turns like what is a perfectly acceptable, well executed wrestling match into something very, very great. Um, and I think I think this is something I've definitely brought up to you before. I'm not sure if I've brought it up on this podcast or in any podcast for that matter. but uh, a couple of years back, Cassas did an interview in which he stated that luchadores never get hurt because they're constantly working, oh, yeah. uh, specifically like guys like guys in CMLL, guys in AAA, some some indie guys. Um, they 're constantly working three, four, or five times a week, and they don 't give their bodies time to rest, so they don't they don 't ever have like the transition in between taking a tour off and coming back and shaking off the rust or anything and like because they 're in a constant state of motion that they never actually get hurt and I think Casas is like a really good example of that idea, maybe being true it 's either that or he 's a vampire
1: I think to go along with that you have to also keep in mind that. Masaki Mochizuki is in Dragon Gate, and uh-huh. Dragon Gate literally does not stop touring like, yeah, never never, never, <laughs> and I think if we're gonna talk about that with casas, that is something that might be also true of mochizuki, and yeah, we did talk about that thing before with like the idea of like your body being so used to doing this thing mm-hmm. that it just becomes like part of a routine that you're not gonna get hurt from it, and a lot of it I do think um. Well, I've said before that a lot of the injuries that people get, like, so caught up on in wrestling, yeah, it's, like, a lot of it is due to, like, just continued, like, accumulated abuse to your body. Mm-hmm. But some of it is, like, freak accidents. And sure, sure. shit just happens. You know, people talk about, like, people, like, having, like, high-flying styles that will hurt their bodies years down the line. And I'm not saying that it's not true or that there's not cases of it being the case, about being, um, valid. Uh-huh. But someone like Neville, who is one of the premier high flyers in all of wrestling, possibly will go down as like one of the like smoothest and best sure. at that aspect of wrestling ever. Sure, he gets injured doing a baseball slide. Like yeah, just
2: the easiest thing in the world. Yeah.
1: So, I think Casas in it's not like he doesn't take bumps either. He still takes that bump <laughs> to the outside oh. <laughs> every match
2: should not be taken. I, I wouldn't take it now at 23 and he's doing it at twice that age. And it's, it's uh, more than twice that age. It's, it's nuts. And yeah, that's, it's, I mean, part season. of that is just part of that is just like the nature of Lucha Libre, which is sort of softer on the body in some ways. Um, yeah, um, and it, yeah. And that's... I, and you mentioned a routine before, and I think that's a very important word to keep in mind that like with, guys like Casas with Mochizuki as we'll mention here in a second with Tenru, who I'm sure we'll talk about with with Atlantis and Blue Panther and Virus um, you sort of develop into a routine that you get when you get older when you grow into your 40s and 50s and 60s when you're still wrestling Uh, and what you do sort of basically the same things every match and you can like kind of dial it back on the execution or like the impact that you put into that Um, and you reroute that energy into something like characterization or um, I don't know, selling or whatnot. And and that's how you improve your wrestling as you get older and you can't be going a hundred miles an hour. Like you used to do when you were 25. And I think Casas is a fantastic example of that.
1: You know, I think like we would someone it up. Be like the opposite of Casas is like solar and like, sure. I like solar, but when it, get, it does get tiring watching him <laughs> like move really slowly to put on these holds and I'm not going to lie, there's been a bunch of times watching Solar and tag matches where I would just start dozing off because it's like, sure. Holy shit. Like, I, like it's the same thing over and over again. And that's not bad. Formula isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when it's really, really dry, I'm not mm-hmm. going to sit here and act like it's not boring.
2: And it's like we see Solar tagging with guys like Negro Navarro and Black Terry Jr. People in Black these Terry mice Jr. throw. <laughs> yeah. People in these mice throw matches that are like, great and we love to see them keep working but like i don't know solar just doesn't put that extra something into it whereas someone like negor does and moving on to masaki mochizuki who's nearing 50 years old jesus and, <laughs> and in a promotion that is like so heavily based around like young good-looking dudes that's that's nuts
1: yeah um and then when he first when he first starts off he's is really weird he's not he's not even close to looking like the same guy yeah. that he is now with the um outfit that he's wearing but yeah mochizuki is someone where he might not be put in big spots that much anymore but uh-huh. he's like casas and where if you give him a big spot whether it be at gate of destiny 2015 against shingo or a corking hall main event or uh or um team veterans versus the rookies Korokin match like He's going to show up, and he's going to be probably the best guy in that match because he's still mm-hmm. Masaki Mochizuki. And he's someone where even if he's doing something stupid like tagging with Don Fuji, he's always the highlight of the match, I think. Yeah. Which is still like something that's a testament to Mochizuki, is that it doesn't matter exactly what he's doing. It yeah. doesn't ever feel like he's coasting.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm necessarily agree that it doesn't feel like he's coasting, but there's certain things that he does turn up to such a degree that like, I don't mind that he might be coasting in the ring. And I wanted to compare him to Atlantis. And it's like, we know Dragon Gate's got the heavy lucha Libre influence. And a lot of that shows up with, it's like technical wrestling and it's mat work. But like, I think the biggest way that it, that it really shows up um, or the way that I appreciate it the most is like in guys having a certain aura Mm-hmm. in which there's there's a couple people like Mochizuki's one of them Shingo's another Shima's another Yamato depending on how you uh how much you like him could be another uh, guys who just have like a certain presence that are just awesome to watch and it's awesome to see them interacting with other people regardless of whether or not those people have a presence in the same way that I would say someone like Atlantis who is like this great transcendent like idol of the children baby face who is awesome to watch no matter what he's doing um and i i think there's a lot of similarities between those two and even if like their execution in the ring isn't as great as it could be though i think mojizuki occasionally is still stellar in the ring um they're still endlessly enjoyable to watch just because they're really great uh i don't know they're showman's
1: now, we can transition in the Blue Panther and Atlantis, but Atlantis is someone that's, in the last couple of years, he didn't have a big match on um, the Anniversario last year. That was Dragon Lee versus La Mascara, but in the years prior against Osimo Guerrero and against La Sombra, he was almost becoming like this Undertakerish ish figure uh-huh. in Lucha, where... If this is the big Anniversario show yeah and your mask is on the line you're not beating atlantis this is his big match this is his big night
2: but even even if it's like a foregone conclusion it's like it's must see wrestling exactly. you know what i mean it it always has such a such an awesome sort of um i don't know it's it's such a great vibe like the Anniversario shows uh i don't know it's it's great there's there's really nothing like it
1: yeah uh but Atlantis, I think his closest comp, as far as like what he offers, is he's still part of the regular roster. He's still going to be in arena, arena Mexico main events on Fridays and whatnot, constantly. But yeah. As far as like when he is exerting the most effort, because Atlantis is a guy that, while he's always super fun to watch, I think it's always clear to see that he's going to come in do his backbreakers, totally. Um, put in the Atlantita. And that'll be it. Uh-huh. But when it comes to the big match, I don't think there's anyone that at that age will turn it up the way Atlantis does. Well,
2: that's an interesting thought. Do you think, do you value that consistency more or do you value like having that one awesome transcendent match a year? Uh, and in which one of those do you think subscribes to your idea of getting better as a wrestler as you get older?
1: Yeah, that, is something that i'm not exactly sure on because it's still something i struggle with when it comes to current like you know (laughs) wrestlers um like i can say that david Starr is like Mm -hmm. having a really great year Mm -hmm. all around everywhere he goes he's like putting in a ton of effort but and i've never been someone that really like subscribed to like New Japan guys being the best wrestler of the year when they only have a sure. handful of matches, like that's never been me. Uh-huh. But I also have like Kazuchika Okada as like a really great guy this year, and that's only based on a few matches. And I think that also like I think that all depends on how strong you think those matches are, mm-hmm. because not in in no other New Japan year have I had someone with four, five, six big matches under their belt. And call year. That
3: That's never yeah. been me.
1: But for twenty seventeen, it's like uh, I might have like I might have to make an exception for Okada this year. I think that <laughs> yes. just speaks to how much I like those matches. But yeah, um I don't know, Atlantis and the consistency consistency thing, I guess it depends on how much his uh basic stuff may bother you. Totally,
2: yeah. It's 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 how much each end of the spectrum extends.
1: Yeah. And I enjoy him even when he's not like in a big match. I enjoy him when he was in fantastic mania facing rush. Uh-huh. I enjoyed that stuff. And at this point, I'm not sure if we're ever going to get another big Atlantis anniversary main event. I've been begging them to do Atlantis versus rush. And I'm sure. not sure when that's ever going to happen. If it ever happens, but I am also fine with the idea of someone just being like a special attraction. Like, Mm -hmm. as Undertaker started dwindling down, I had no problem with him being like a special attraction. Like, that's what you want out of wrestling sometimes. You want someone to feel special and feel different from everyone else on the roster or in the wrestling landscape in general. And Uh that's what Undertaker was.
0: We'll return after these messages. Promotional consideration paid for by the following... Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the pro wrestling only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Play Nation's J.T. Rosero here, and I want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlayStation.com, And we now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the Place of wrestling feed, you can check out Scott Kerskolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current day wrestling with clotheslines and headlines, main event, Lucha, Afterground, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows. And we leave wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse, The Our Vantage Point podcast, which features a potpourri-style look at wrestling history. And Survey Says, a fun look back at the good, bad, and ugly of WCW. And on our very popular PlayStation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler podcast, Our Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversations, Geek and Sassy, and the Imaginary Stories. You can find all these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All these shows, plus others, available at PlayStation.com where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments and more. Be sure to support our site by using playstationcom backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping. And download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, thehistoryofwrestling.com, and Scott Keith's blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. playstation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world.
4: pro wrestling only podcast network subscribe on itunes or on android with your favorite podcast app established in 2013 the pro wrestling only podcast network is committed to providing unique takes on the rich and diverse medium of professional wrestling focusing on its history and global impact but also exploring the vibrant contemporary scene the roll call includes space city an nwa on-demand podcast this week in wrestling Stacey Elliott's Elliot's Bogus Journey, The Super Apoitas Podcast, The Military-Industrial Suplex, Strong Style History, Pure Puri, and Psychology is Dead. Also, from the archives, the full catalog of great shows that provided a fresh look at classic wrestling, including Where the Big Boys Play, Titans of Wrestling, Tag Team's Back Again, Letters from Kayfabe, Wrestling Culture, Pro Wrestling Super Show, Goodwill Wrestling, and many, many others. Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Only the best.
5: Now back to the show.
1: So for the fact that um, Atlantis is on that spectrum, we saw Blue Panther, who's not exactly having main event matches, but still when they put him with his sons in these trios matches, still is a highlight
2: of everything mm-hmm. he does. I don't know if I can speak to Blue Panther too much because like, I don't know what the early portion of his career looks like for the most part. I basically only know the period of time in between. He forms, uh, Los Laguneros in her 99, 98, maybe, mm. uh, that period of time in between that and like 2010. Uh, and in between there, he's having great matches. And in 2008 has like one of the best matches I've ever seen with, uh, Viano five. And, is like really great today and still does enjoyable stuff that I like with his kids. But like I don't know what the last ten years of Blue Panther's career has been like.
1: Yeah, and there has been a lot of uh trio stuff, occasional lightning matches. But I think it goes to just how well he does in the time he's given. Because he's uh-huh. you know, he's not treated like an afterthought. He's given time when Arena Mexico shows constantly. But it's not like he's being given anything to do. But which is, the, well, but that's the case with so many people on the CMLL roster. That looks like, mm-hmm. like a really lazy company in general. That's sure. not gonna like put like exert too much effort for anything other than a. And, he, and he's
2: and he's in his fifties. Like it's mm-hmm. not like he's gonna put in tons of effort. Like, yeah,
1: yeah. But I still think that he's among the best trios workers in the world, probably. Sure. And I think there's like a few guys that are just always gonna be like. Standouts whenever there's whenever whenever they're in a trios match, like yes, yeah. is always gonna be great. Um, Dragon Lee's always gonna be great. Ultimo Guerrero and that whole Guerrero family is always really good in trios matches. But Blue Panther, I think, for his age and still being the highlight of a tri- of a match structure, where there's five other people, and you still feel like um the biggest deal in it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think is a testament to how well he can still go at this point Mm. in time it's a good point yeah but i feel like i want to move on a little bit to the people that we're not too sure on and this one is hard to describe because there's like people that are like are really conflicting
3: Uh i don't know
1: who you ask like there's universal people like we mentioned what negro casas and jumbo um We didn't get the Jerry Lawler or Chris Hero or Michael Samora or John Cena yet, but those are like people where like you can see. Well, most people would agree that they got older in some ways. Now, most,
2: well, yeah, most people did. Most people do get older, Quentin. That's just the passage of time affects us all. No, what, the, what did I say? You said most people would agree they got older, which I think we could I agree thought, on. I <laughs> thought I said they got better. It's a real good George Bushism right there. Oh, man. All right. Delete that. Uh, no.
1: <laughs> but now like people are like, there's ones that are more conflicting.
5: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think the most maybe controversial talked about guy when it comes to this might be Shawn Michaels. Sure. And Sean is someone where I'll admit that I like 2000 Shawn yeah. more than his other periods totally, which is like some, like a lot of people like, Oh my 2000, Sean is terrible. The triple H feud and all these things. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I grew up on that stuff. Mm -hmm. And Shawn Michaels was one of the first people that like grabbed my attention. Yeah. As um, I was beginning to get into wrestling. And even as I go back and watch that stuff now and other people don't hold up as well. I think Shawn Michaels does. Uh, what do you think from his early mm. AWA stuff to his stuff when he goes to WWF, goes solo, retires for four years and comes back? Uh, what do you think of Shawn Michaels? Because his career um, does go down a lot of weird paths.
2: Uh-huh. I think more so than even someone like Jumbo, who we mentioned before. I think Shawn is a person who, like, changed so fundamentally in the ring that, like, between the 80s and 2010 when he retires it is just certainly not the same person um and you might argue he might have changed uh in real life as well as as just a as a not as a character but as a uh in real life person um some people might also argue that <laughs> that turning to god and becoming a born again a born again christian was a gimmick um and i might subscribe to that theory but i'm not so sure Uh, In any case, like, he is just so fundamentally different uh, from the beginning of his career to the end. And there's, like, great stuff strewn throughout there, whether it's the AWA that you mentioned with those tags against, like, um, Summers and uh, Landau.
1: See, how how are you going to say Doug Summers, but forget Buddy Rose?
2: Was that it? Oh, it was was Buddy Rose, not Buddy Landau. That's why I'm... You
1: got on my bad side there.
2: I'm I'm getting the two buddies confused. That's who it is. Um... But between that stuff and, like, the other Rocker stuff as they transition into WWF to, like, the Intercontinental runs and his world title runs that I really appreciate throughout the 90s to, like, his comeback, which has, like, an ebb and flow with how much I appreciate it, but also features, like, some jaw-droppingly good matches. Like, it's hard to discount the idea that he changed – it's hard to discount the idea that he changed, period. Period. Whether or not he changed for the better, I'm not quite sure. As he grew on, especially in the comeback, I think he picked up some really annoying habits. But sometimes those annoying habits made for, like, fantastic matches. So it's it's sort of a mixed bag, I think.
1: Now, another person that can kind of fit into this category, but his career and all that is even weirder than Michael's is, is uh, Brock Lesnar. Mm-hmm. And this is amateur wrestling phenomenon Mm -hmm. professional wrestling prodigy coming in and he is immediately like the hottest thing in the company they give him the ball and obviously there's a lot of uh weird and bad booking with lesnar but at no point does lesnar ever like stop being awesome yeah and i yeah go ahead well, I mean, no, you go ahead with whatever you were thinking. Like, at no point does Lesnar stop being awesome. But then he leaves wrestling, goes from football to wrestling in New Japan to doing MMA. And he finds real success in the UFC. But then he comes back in 2012 and he's a completely different person than he was in 2002. Which obviously you're going to get when you're uh, taking so much time away from wrestling. But I think uh-huh. is how, like drastically different he was when he came back which is why he's on this list because it's a completely different um Brock not in his effort but exactly what he's doing and what's getting over that he's doing
2: it's really funny um it is astounding how much they stuffed into two years of Brock Lesnar's career from 2002 to 2004 and like he did more, he did more stuff in those two years than most people do in their entire careers. It's really, it's really mind blowing. Um, And when I first got into wrestling, he was one of those guys who I saw and I was like, this guy is fantastic. Like he is awesome. He's consistently great. One of my favorite wrestlers, he's having matches that just blow me away. Um, And even just the little things he does, are like really awesome to me and he was someone who i wanted to see come back to wrestling because at that point he was in ufc and was doing big things there so when he comes back in 2012 he is so fundamentally changed and i think i think this is part of the reason i think he has changed for the better though in certain ways he's he's picked up some bad habits over the years um in 2002 he is a phenom a prodigy just the the next big thing who becomes the big thing um and he's he's just a young kid still and is an unstoppable force who has a lot of flaws not character flaws necessarily but like there's things that he doesn't know in wrestling yet he's not the smartest or most experienced wrestler yet because he's still you know 23 24 uh and is still only like two three years in um and so then he leaves in 04 goes to new japan goes through MMA. And and I think during that time, I don't, I can't speak to like how much he's changed as a person though. I I definitely know he has changed during that time. I think the idea of who Brock Lesnar was changed so that when he comes back in 2012, he's, he is still this unstoppable force, but he also just gets it. And he's not going to like waste his time doing silly SSPs. He's not going to, he's not going to showboat as much. He's just going to murder people. And he does that with very simplistic moves, very repetitive moves. And it's the thematic change. It's the difference between El Macias and Mil Muertes, uh, which I think is like sort of a similar character arc. And it's, and I think it's definitely an improvement for the better. He has, he's kind of complacent, which is something we're going to talk about later with a couple people. And complacency is a big deal. And it's, it's made him suffer, especially when he has so few matches a year, but like taken as a whole, the dude's had an incredible career, and it's only gotten better as time is going, uh, Time goes on, I think.
1: I think with Brock, it's always uh, a little jarring to watch him. And it's not because it's like, uh, oh man, he was so good, then he got really bad. It's like, it almost makes you wonder, what's the real Brock Lesnar? Because sure. you'll watch that run from 2002 to 2004. And then you'll see him in 2012 to now. And you just wonder, like, man, like, these are completely different acts, but they're so, like, effective either way. Uh Uh-huh. And I think that's what makes it hard to put, like, to say Brock didn't do it for the better. Because if he just came back and was Brock with his, uh black trunks and black knee pads and just came back exactly as he left. Then I don't think it would work. I think the fact that he came back as such a different person is why Brock has, uh, succeeded. You know, the degree of success varies on how much you actually think he's, uh, helped the company the last five years, but just, but Jeff, we're just basing it on uh nerdy. How much have I liked his matches standpoint? like,
2: is that a nerdy metric? Um, apparently, it is. <laughs> I think. It, I mean, it's probably the most important metric there is. <laughs> Some people think um, how much you draw. Uh,
4: yeah,
1: is like the most important one. All hail! <laughs> but Brock is so—he's uh, so engaging. I mm-hmm. think that's always just going to be the constant with him. Is that even if I don't like the fact that he's not there all yeah. the time? Which some people like, but for me, I think that creates a void in the television and makes the television get lazier, which is by no means Brock's fault if he's not even there.
2: He's just one component of a larger problem. Exactly.
1: So I don't even blame Brock for stuff like that. But Uh, whenever Brock shows up, I can't help but be glued to the screen.
2: You, you you mentioned that you find him to be very compelling. And I think it's true that if he came back as just an older version of who he was in 2004, it wouldn't be quite so compelling because like you can see, it's not like the jumbo thing with the weight of the world on his shoulders, but you can see like, um, there's that old saying, like a man never crosses the same river twice or, or it's like the, the river and the man are both different every time that sort of thing happens. Um, and, like, that's really what Lesnar is like, is that, like, in the eight years he was gone from, well, not gone from wrestling, but gone from WWE, he was having, like, life experiences and and succeeding or failing in his careers, and, like, that fundamentally changed him. So he comes back in 2012, eight years older, eight years more grizzled, eight years more experienced, and he's just, it's, it's like seeing someone go to war and come back, and it's, like, it's still the same person, but, like there's there are major changes inside
1: and i think for think on some level i watch current brock and just out of kill like just in the back of my mind i'm always wondering will like that 2002 brock ever come back will i ever see a flash of brock do something wild absolutely insane he doesn't have to do and he 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 still does it oh no he does (laughs) He, he does he did it um most notably in that uh, return match with Cena from Extreme Rules 2012, which is a uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> which I'm a really conflict, I'm really conflicted on that match. But uh, really, how how so? Because in the fact that like it's on its way to being like so unique and distinct in an uh, era of WWE where most of the big main events tend to feel the same. Uh-huh. And then they throw in a whole bunch of referee bullshit. And Cena and Cena comes out on top still. It's not even that Cena wins. It's just like, I, I, no, better get it though. Yeah, it's like a like a it's a no DQ match, and for some reason we're doing ref bumps. Yeah, which is like, you don't
2: need to. <laughs>
1: like, you know, I, like I really hate stupid stipulations, and I really yeah. hate that when you that when you break your like when you do like pointless things in your own stupid stipulations. Like I talked about it, what the um, Hardys versus uh, Cesaro and Sheamus cage match was like. What was the point of Jeff Hardy? So dumb. What what was the point of Jeff Hardy coming back into the cage? Well, now I'm like, this is a no DQ match. What did the? What was the point of knocking out the refs? I don't understand. (laughs) Like, it's so so WWE that it like makes the match feel like all that extra work done at the beginning to make it feel unique is just thrown out.
2: Well, it's funny because like that's a that's sort of like a, a fundamental difference between people whether or not something superfluous detracts or just totally is. Uh, a a non-factor in a a piece of work and people will have different opinions on that but it's like I would definitely point to that sort of thing in like big New Japan matches that you enjoyed um, which is I think something we'll get into in a different podcast
1: but yeah like that match in particular is like one I really want to like more than I do Mm -hmm. but uh, in general I think Brock's best match since he's come back is uh, against the Young Punk and sure. I think that's why I think why it's such a compelling matchup, and why it wound up being like becoming one more than just being it on paper, uh. is the fact that they're such different characters that seeing them clash was just so out of this world and produced something that I think, uh, even though it had the WWE isms of uh, interference and uh, kendo sticks and all that stuff, I think it uh, still manages to feel unique. But I don't think it ever presents itself as anything more than a big WWE match. But I think John Cena versus Brock attempted to go away from that and then somehow wound up at that point.
2: Sure, 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 sure.
1: But now I want to talk about Ric Flair and Terry Funk. And oh boy. these two went down similar paths oddly enough although it's like 10 years apart. And this is the guys who were model NWA type champions and eventually they go down the path of uh doing more uh violent hardcore bum buckets of blood kind of wrestling. And I think that's more uh Ric Flair than it is Terry Funk because Terry just
2: goes wild. Well, it's not well, Ric- It's interesting you say that because uh Ric Flair wasn't in the King of the Death matches. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, fair enough, but I think Terry. I don't think Terry's thing was like bleeding. I think he was just more crazy old man. Ric Flair is bleeding mm, every true. single time. It doesn't that, matter. That's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter what he's doing. It could be like a backstage segment with Carlito. It could be getting dragged out by Edge and Orton to the from to the stage. It could be cutting a promo on Triple H, and he busts his own head open during the promo. He is always bleeding. But a lot of people don't like that period of Ric Flair where he's like transitioning post-WCW. But I think he really finds his way um, in 2005. Maybe even a little bit earlier in 2004. I think Ric Flair finds something that works for him. Mm-hmm. And that being that um real sympathetic
2: old man works for Flair. It's... um it's interesting i'll 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 share an anecdote of a an argument i had with a friend a little more than a year ago uh, and i was telling my friend about the gwe process and, and what it was and what it entailed and who came out on top and he was aghast that rick flair was somehow voted the number one best wrestler of all time and i told him like well i i don't necessarily think that's true but like he's definitely up there for me. He's no like no shorter. He's no lower than in my top 10. And he just could not wrap his brain around Ric Flair being one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And he specifically said something to me that was like, how many great matches has Ric Flair had after 1996? And I was like, you're specifically choosing a point in which he's already 20 years into his career and has like survived a plane crash and this has been world you know, champion you know let's not forget like he's working like our
1: matches in yeah. every single territory he's Jesus champion Christ. you know at multiple points dozens of uh, times over by the yes, time to wrestle everybody like no other person had to wrestle everybody the way yeah. Flair did
2: and i and i thought it was just such a baffling thing that he would like totally neglect that entire era of his career and part of it's just because of who he was as a fan um but I think it's interesting because, like, whereas I think Terry Funk is so solidly in that camp of maybe not someone who got better as his career went on, but definitely found ways to adapt and at least um attain a certain level of excellence – Um I'm not sure if I can say the same for Flair after mm-hmm. that like '96 period, but he does certainly have his peaks in the 2000s, in which like he's doing sympathetic, uh, sympathetic old man stuff. The highlight of which is clearly like his retirement match in WWE, which is like super goofy and full of WWE isms. Yeah, but a, that's it's a,
1: that's a real lightning round of a match.
2: Like. It's 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 a very moving thing if you allow it to move you, um, and like that sort of thing really matters a lot to me. But like that period of time in between Oh four and like 96. And a lot of that has to do with like WCW being what it was. um, I'm not sure if there's a whole lot there. So Flair might've like, he, he, he starts his career real well and like uh, his career trajectory goes up and up and up and then it sort of plateaus. And I think it might, dip quite a bit, and I yeah. think he reaches the yeah. level of that plateau once again by the time he gets to the end, but he does certainly have a big dip there.
1: Yeah, and that's why I put him in the question mark category, because a lot of it does have to do with politics and what was going on in WCW at the time. Um, wanting him to take a back seat to the NWO and... Uh, you know, it takes a toll on Flair. And yeah. Flair, yeah. you know, it's not to say, like, I should have sympathy for him. It's not to say he's a good person. It's not to say he didn't do his fair share of backstage politicking. Sure. But when you're someone that is so used to being on top and being presented uh, in a respectful way or a way that you deem respectful, uh-huh. having someone come in and be like, no, it's not about
2: you anymore can uh, be a shock to the system. Uh-huh. And, and I think someone like and I think someone like Funk took that with grace and and really elevated the people who did come after him and did so much to help the careers of like countless people, regardless of whether or not they did good things. but like a lot of people wouldn't have had the careers that they've had in wrestling without someone like Terry funk yeah,
1: and Terry is a guy where I think the transition that he'd made. And that's the key word, transition, because he made, like, so many different changes in his career. While a lot of the guys on this list, like, got better with experience and adding uh-huh. things to their moves that they maybe weren't there before, these are full-scale transitions that Terry Funk is doing, whether it be... But at, like, but at
2: the same time, I think he's he's still the crazy old man. He's still that same fundamental character. He's just... Sort of, as the world changes around him, like, mm-hmm. in the 70s, he's doing... He's still doing sort of brawly sorts of things, but for the most part, he's doing, like, map-based wrestling. And in the 80s, he's wild and and doing these big arena brawls and, and bleeding all over the place. And then in the 90s, he's doing, like, explicitly hardcore stuff and yeah. is, like, main eventing King of the Death matches. Um, yeah, like, and he that's, was
1: always, like... I guess the way, best way to phrase it is that he's always been a little off. He's always been a loose cannon. uh uh-huh. But as he gets
2: older, like, his sanity is just gone. He's been able to, like he's been able to be a loose cannon no matter where he went, whether that be all Japan or ECW or WWE, which all have like varying levels of cannon-ness. Like, <laughs> he's... like, like how far can you go? Yeah. Yeah. And in regardless of any situation between all those promotions, he's always the loosest of cannons.
1: No, I guess the thing I want to ask is like, while Terry, I guess took it in a more, uh, graceful way, do you think the fact that he did the violent stuff for so long kind of uh, hampers the, like, the specialness of his transition? As to where when Ric Flair started going for the um, mm. very bloody stuff, it didn't last that long. So it's only like a really um short period of Flair doing that.
2: I wouldn't say that because I think there's still like you get like a good 10 years at the very least of Terry Funk doing those bloody matches right. from like From somewhere in the 90s through 2006 or so, he's still doing those sorts of, like, barbed wire, bleeding all over the place, my eye, kind (laughs) of matches. And I enjoy that stuff a lot, but it's
1: always something Mm -hmm. that, uh, I guess, is your mileage when it comes to Terry Funk. And it's like,
2: I am also a huge fan of hardcore wrestling and deathmatch wrestling, so I have, like, a higher threshold for that sort of thing, I think. And not ever not everyone's gonna not everyone's going to see that six times in a couple of months and be like, "Oh, this is great! I love this. Some people are gonna be like, "Eh, uh, this is old to me,
1: yeah But Terry and with Terry, it really did go on for as long as some of his like earlier work did where he was doing man-based uh-huh. stuff. he's been doing violent hardcore wrestling for almost as long,
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: so Now I want to go to two more WWE-ish names. Although one name here spent more time in another company than he did in WWE. But Chris Jericho and Kurt Angle. Mm. And Kurt Angle is one that I want to have a particular discussion about. Because I think a lot of the stuff that I said about Brock um, needs to be like, you know, why is it bad when Kurt Angle does it? Mm. But to start with Chris Jericho first... A lot of people think Chris Jericho, like, fell off at a certain point, and, like, he's gotten worse, and then in 2008, 2009, he was great again, then went back to being bad. Mm. But, for me, I never thought that uh, Chris Jericho was an amazing worker, anyway.
2: Oh, that's not the direction I thought you were going to go with this. Okay. Alright, where did you think I was going? I thought you were going to say, like, I think he's always been great. <laughs>
1: No, I love Jericho. I think he's had great matches, but I would never say that Chris Jericho has always been an amazing wrestler. Yeah. I think he's always been a real engaging personality, and maybe not in like Smoky Mountain or anything like that. But when we get to um, Nitro and when he turns heel, I think from then on he's always a real engaging personality, whether it be as a heel or a baby because he's learned how to harness his uh, charisma, his talking skills. His mannerisms, his facial expressions, how he um, how he uses the way he dresses to exude personality and all that stuff. I think he always had that at least since '97. Mm-hmm. So when it comes down to like people saying uh, the end ring with Jericho has gotten bad, I guess for me because that's never been my focus with Jericho. The reason why I think he's a guy that has transitioned well is because mm. no matter um what he's doing as a character, I think it usually hits. I'm not saying in the ring it's yeah. always delivering. But as a character, whether it's uh the C M Punk feud in twenty twelve or uh even when C M Punk turns babyface and Chris Jericho is like I don't trust him or uh the stuff with Kevin Owens or the stuff when he uh is feuding with Shawn Michaels in two thousand eight or the Christian feud or like that. i feel like as a character i always resonate with him which is a different approach than most people that are on this list but that's just mm-hmm. how i've always been with jericho
2: well it's an interesting point too because a lot of what we've been talking about is like people who have gotten better or gotten worse in the ring like executing moves and having actual matches uh and i think it's important to note that like yeah, I think Chris Jericho's like biggest strengths have always been stuff outside of the ring or the character stuff he does in the ring. Um, and like I've never been a huge fan of Chris Jericho. I think he's fine. Um, and I think occasionally, like in 08 and 09, he was tremendous and was certainly having the best run of his career. So I think like you average that out. He does sort of get better as time goes on, but like for the most part, yeah, you're right. The the character stuff is really what he hangs his head on. And I think it's what we should judge him based on. And so, and I, then if we're going to do that, I think today his character stuff is the weakest it's ever been. And so I think maybe he's gotten worse in some ways.
1: I think that's interesting because the fact that he's been, he's been around it so long, you know, most definitely in WWE because he's been there for almost 20 years Uh on and off. Uh, the fact that he could take something as, uh, simple and stupid as, uh, the list is something, uh, like... He makes it
2: work. He makes it work. I'm not going to deny that. Oh yeah, I'm
1: not, it's not even that he makes it work. I think it's the fact that, uh, he even takes an old catchphrase, like stupid idiot, that he's been using for so long, uh-huh. and then that is becoming a big thing. Yeah. I think it's just like the mind of Chris Jericho, even if it's not always like something like revolutionary it's always going to stick with the crowd. And I don't know anyone that really has that kind of a uh, mind.
3: Except
2: mm-hmm.
1: maybe Matt Hardy when it comes to people that have like minds for what, like, we'll, like, what will stick with the audience?
2: And, and we'll talk about him in a second. And like, it's at the end of the day, it's hard to argue that like, if it's getting over with all sorts of people all around the world, like it's hard to argue that it's actually all that bad.
1: Now the current angle, and this is one that, I've always been sort of a Kurt Angle defender, as mm. a lot of the things I feel like people attribute to Kurt Angle just aren't his problem. There's not things that he caused.
2: Well, like his alcoholism?
1: <laughs> no, um, uh, the, Effect- the alcoholism, the drug abuse, uh, that, but the, uh, like the.
2: Losing his wife.
1: That too. But the fact that, uh, the finisher spam. Is like mm-hmm. what people always point to is like Kurt Angle's problem. Like he's having these like real work rate heavy matches with finisher spam and no emotion. Like people always point to that with uh, Kurt Angle, and I thought that would always that was always funny because it's like, well, I thought Randy Savage was like more mm-hmm. known for spamming his uh, finishers, on, you know, in a real uh, heavy amount.
2: That's a fair argument.
1: So, so that was always like my thing is like people kind of blaming Kurt for habits that I don't think necessarily started with him. But it's not to say these habits are bad.
2: Totally. Oh, totally. And regardless of whether or not it started with him, I think Kurt is someone that you can point to as the catalyst to what it's grown into today, where the people that that Kurt wrestles then take up that habit and are doing it still today. Like John Cena is a great example, uh, wrestled Kurt Angle in his first televised match with wwe well not televised he he did like heat stuff but his first main roster um wwe match was with kurt angle and i think he has taken up a lot of the bad habits that kurt had including this like finisher spam as a way to inject drama into a match um
1: i'd say um to be completely honest that cena is like worse than kurt when it comes to that because
2: maybe i'm not sure
1: a lot of the time with cena it's just so pointless that it's like like I'm not saying that's not pointless, but, pointless but Kurt, but like when sure. I'm watching Cena and I love Cena, but when he does it, sometimes it's like, what what was the point? Like and then he <laughs> like he's like you know he's the prototypical finisher, shocked face at the camera kind of guy. Even if the finisher is like hit at a moment in time where it just makes no sense that that'll be the end of the match.
2: And part of that's like just the meta narrative that we have as experienced wrestling fans to know like, oh, there's no way this match is ending here. And that's sort of, that sort of adds a wrinkle to this. I will say that like one thing working against Cena is that I don't believe Kurt Angle's most egregious wrestling finisher spam was on a weekly basis, but during Cena's, um, really enjoyable but flawed U.S. title run oh, yeah, in 2015. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was like, doing heavy. it, constantly, week in, week out. He was doing it against guys like against Sami Zayn, Cesaro, Zach Stardust. <laughs> yeah, people. He just like Zack Ryder needs two attitude adjustments. Yeah, that's not. That's that's a little much. You know, like the criticism of Flair from people is sometimes that
1: uh he gives people too much. Uh huh. And John Cena, while he is like the most unselfish, uh. Top star ever, and that's something to be commended. When, yeah. you're, when you're wrestling Zach Ryder, like, does he need to be kicking out of your finisher?
2: Yeah, it's there's definitely a line that is drawn somewhere, and people like Kurt Angle and John Cena have crossed that line. But we're talking about whether or not Angle has improved or deproved uh, <laughs> in his career. I think with
1: and, uh, Angle, before you uh get to what you were going to say there, sure, is that I think Angle is more of a case of. Uh, stagnation than getting worse for the record.
2: Hmm. Okay. You wanna you wanna um you brought it up earlier in the podcast when you explained what this was gonna be. Do you wanna uh explain the difference between those two terms?
1: See a lot of people like think that we touched on it earlier when it came to getting worse and getting better. And if you're not getting better then you're getting worse. Uh huh. But I think Angle is a case where he kept off at a certain point and at no point was he told that he needed to change things that he needed to get better because he's already being pushed so hard. So why would he change things? So it's almost like,
2: yeah, so, a, a so, big, so. a big part of Angle is that he had such success early in his career that like, and I don't think anyone's ever approached him and asked him to do things differently. Uh, so those two factors together have have put him in such a situation in which he's like, I know what works, and what I think works is this very weird specific thing that comes with it. A lot of problems.
1: And I think this is something that you said that you fear, uh, of Matthew Riddle becoming, of him uh, having totally. such success early on that when he gets older, will he try to get better? Or will he be sticking to the same thing that he was able to do when uh-huh. he first started wrestling?
2: It's, 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 a, it's a common problem. I think with a lot of guys who, who get real good real early. Um, and it's, like, I, like I'm like i a firm believer in that, like, you have to spend a certain amount of time in your career, like, just uh, slumming it. You have to, like, work through the shit. You have to work in front of VFW halls of 20 people and do that for years to, to develop the sorts of skills that you need to be a really good wrestler. Um, and more and more, you see guys like Matt, Matt, Matt Riddle, like Will Ospreay, who don't necessarily have a lot of those experiences and i think they're worse for it in some ways. And kurt angle, kurt angle's one of those people. i think it is such a bummer he didn't actually join ecw because i think working in ecw would have would have fixed certain problems.
1: like a lot of people um throw things out this like throw things like this out there where like x should be the greatest wrestler of all time but they're not. sure. i feel like kurt angle is that guy where it's like uh-huh. he
2: should be the greatest wrestler ever. Like, and a lot of people a lot of people think he, like, is. Yeah, like, a lot you look of, at about to say that Meltzer some people, people... Yeah, a lot, a lot of people like, on him.
1: do think that he is, like, a top 5, top 10, top totally. 1, Grand Surser, you know, Grand kind of guy. But for me, even though I still rank him pretty highly, it's like, look at all the tools he has, and he mm-hmm. should be the Grand Surser of all time. But I don't think he is. But going back to the Stagnation point... What do you think about Kurt? Is that, do you think he um, got worse as he got older, or do you think it was a case of him just doing the same thing over and over again?
2: Well, I think to really answer that question, we have to get to the bottom of what stagnation means. And I think the heart of that term is perception. Right. And I think, it's, I think it's how you view a person not changing over the years there's a lot of people who've been doing the same shtick forever that I love we we mentioned guys earlier like Necrocasas like Atlantis like Virus who who are luchadors who've been doing the same thing for 10, 15, 20, 25 years and I love it because they're really good at it but sometimes like we mentioned with someone like Solar um, sometimes there are missing aspects of that and that's where we get stagnation that's where we get like this is the same old same old and you're not bringing any new elements to it, and you're not, um, I don't know, maybe you're not executing it the way that you used to with the, the skill that you used to, and that's where we get stagnation. That's where we get, like, this is, this is the same old shit, and I'm tired of seeing it, and you're not actively getting worse, but I'm not happy that you're not getting better. I think as um, a
1: viewer, it like, wears on you a lot where you want something
2: uh-huh. to uh-huh. be different.
1: Even if you're not getting it, it causes a more uh, extreme reaction, even yeah. if maybe it shouldn't be like offending you on that level because they're yeah. not doing something that is like say, that you're saying is terrible or awful. Yeah. But because you want that person to offer something different and they're not, it tends to weigh on you more.
2: It's it, it's because theoretically, if someone's doing something terrible or awful, they'll get the sort of feedback that will then make them change that and they'll not do that terrible or awful thing for very long Mm. but with stagnation that's i think that that process is a lot slower and some people never change and and someone like kurt angle i think developed certain problems early on and then never changed those and did certainly stagnate and that's not to say that's not to say he doesn't have great matches late in his career like Mm. as late as i think oh nine or maybe some of the aj stuff and like when is that? Like 2011? I don't yeah, even know. You like know when he like
1: teaming, like, like teaming with AJ and
2: sure, like, uh, like, even yeah, good stuff. Even in the late, t- oh, or, or, fuck, he had uh, he had a match with Lashley in 2015 that I really enjoyed. Um, like he he's still a real good wrestler and has had great matches this late in his career. But like, and and another thing is like his like I don't want to see him wrestle anymore. Because, like, the personal things in his life, like, he is a self-destructive person, and wrestling is his conduit into destroying himself, and I don't want to see that anymore. So, like, having to witness that over the period of, like, ten years, along with artistic stagnation is, it's a real bummer.
1: One thing that I want to get to before we get to, um, why is it bad when Angle does these things, but Mm. when it isn't with Brock? But... Do you think that like some like part of the reason why uh you can come across more, you come across more uh, blunt or harsh when you uh um talk about wrestling to some people comes from the fact that uh even if something isn't bad and you can acknowledge that something isn't bad, that you may uh talk in extremes and like a hopes to like maybe some maybe something will get uh different with this person that maybe will get something uh a bit more
2: unique instead of the same old, same old. Could you, I'm not sure if I totally understand where you're where you're getting with this question.
1: I think because uh, with a lot of um, what you write and what you say, um, some people can think you come across as a harsh or blunt,
3: totally inflammatory. And, yeah, and
1: like... knowing you, I don't. I know you don't hate a lot of the stuff that you. Um, <coughs> I know you don't hate a lot of the stuff that you're uh, uh-huh. accused or uh, of hating. Sometimes you're just a little uh, fed up. And you want this person to be great or be better? Yes. That's that's one aspect of it. Yeah. Would you kind of say you like speak in extreme sometimes? For, so maybe in some way things will change, or is it like something that just naturally comes <laughs> with your writing? Well,
2: it's not. It, it's not something that I think. Like there's no part of me that believes, oh man, maybe Matt riddle will see this one jab <laughs> that I took at him in this in this article and and uh it'll change the way he approaches wrestling, and he'll get better, and I'll love him. I don't think that certainly at all um part of it is just the way that I write and the the way that I use very flower uh flowery, it's so hard to say with the speech of flowery. flowery and very impactful language um though i think I think really where most of that comes from is just like trying to get my feelings and ideas across to people who think very differently um, and trying to make myself understood, which I've, if you know anything about me and if you want to hear more about that, uh, you can go listen to my Lucha Undead podcast with Tim Buckner here on the place to be nation. Um, And I've, I've struggled so much in my life with, with making myself understood. And so I think sometimes like I do, come across as such a brash and such an extreme person sometimes because I think I feel the need to do that in order to get the point across.
1: Well, Kurt Angle and going back to his repetitive nature, we talked about it with Brock. Brock comes back in 2012. Uh It's German suplexes, knee strikes, all sorts of clubbing blows, an F5, maybe Mm. a Kimura thrown in. It's very limited with this more recent version of Kurt Angle that we've been getting as he's gotten older. is German suplexes, German suplexes, ankle lock, Kurt Moonsalt. Angle slam, and maybe a moonsault.
2: Jesus, it's fucking moonsaults.
1: And I was wondering, do you think that the reason why we're harder on Kurt Angle for being so uh, repetitive is the fact that he doesn't have a nearly the same, uh, compelling aura or personality as Brock. Yes.
2: You're, you're, these things. you're getting to exactly what I think is the major difference here. I spoke to it earlier with like this thematic change that Lesnar had when he came back in 2012 in which he is, he's grown, he's grizzled. He is now more of a complete behemoth, a total monster that he, he wasn't quite when he was, uh, younger and earlier in his WWE days. Um, and as, like, just this unstoppable heel, like, I think that sort of idea and that sort of match layout fits Lesnar's approach very well. With Engel, he is, like, this all-American, this Olympian, this, for the most part, a babyface. Like, someone who has to struggle and has to, like, do five ankle locks and three... uh three Olympic slams to get through a match and is always and his matches are always like super dramatic. I think because he's that sort of a, of a baby face, it comes across in such a worse way. Like he is struggling against, how do I put this? He is struggling against uh, a greater force that I don't think is as great as someone like Brock Lesnar. And I think with someone who is as great as Brock Lesnar, that force is requisite. That force is, is maybe excessive at certain points, but is warranted. But with Kurt Angle's situation, I don't think it is. To get to
1: someone who I think is a, possibly the greatest case of someone continually changing themselves as the wrestling landscape and the world around them changes, Matt Hardy.
2: Oh, I thought you were going to say Brutus the Barber Beefcake. <laughs> I mean, if you, sort of. If you if you, squ- I, if you squint hard enough, they look they look similar. I would I would wager that there is more similarity there than you'd think. <laughs> I would assume it would be the drugs. Sure,
1: <laughs> man. But when you look at Matt Hardy and not even having to go back to the Omega stuff, but when you look at him mm-hmm. when he's super young doing jobs on Monday Night Raw to when they get full time contracts and they're coming in as these uh. I guess, like, mesh, shirt-wearing, uh... <laughs> I don't know how to say it, because I know there are some things that directly annoy you, and I'm not sure which one would be correct.
2: I don't know where you're going with this one. You're trying to call them goth? I'm not... Because I'm, mm. I, don't, I don't think I'd call him goth, but they've got, like, goth elements like in their, goth, in their I clothes. Would say, I,
1: would say, I wouldn't say goth, but maybe gothic, maybe? Like...
2: Uh, there's, they're, I don't know. They're sort of like ravey. They're sort of just alternative. Uh, it's like the '90s, like slacker culture.
1: I feel like it's more, uh, I don't know,
2: Donnie. They're Darko, very, Don, Donnie Darko-ish. I'm not sure. I, I think their team name is really just the most indicative of what that style is. It's Team Extreme. Oh, well, it wasn't that's what like it
1: meaning of Team Extreme stuff because like, that comes later on. But like when they're the New
2: Brood. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, so so that's that is maybe. certainly a different, yeah. That's more gothic, yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, so that's what I was thinking there. But obviously they transitioned in the, t- in the team extreme. Um, this pair of wild boys. Um, and as oh
2: man, I'm gonna have that song stuck in my head now. <laughs> this entire podcast. <laughs> wild wow,
1: boys, wild wow, boys. This is now a wild boys karaoke dedicated podcast.
2: Mr. Crocup.
1: But now with. But now, when they go solo and they get put on different brands, Matt starts to develop this version one character uh-huh in this v one stuff' it was the first time Matt had been able to go heal, which uh-huh. is something if you uh read any um interviews or watch any documentaries when he talks about that time period there's something he's wanted to do for a while he wanted to go I didn't heel. know that he wanted to go heal, and he just lets loose and he is so cocky and arrogant and so over the top with the mat facts in the presentation as seller with the (laughs) computer um Uh and booting up the virgin one it's tremendous stuff and then when he comes back after being fired and he's he's feeding with edge he's like the best baby face in the world probably he Uh is absolutely incredible as this fiery man who's been done wrong by everything in the world. And once we even get past that, if we get him on the independent scene, more specifically in Ring of Honor, this is when he starts uh, using YouTube a little bit more. And he had always used social media to his advantage very well. One of the first guys to use social media to boost himself up. That's how he got Mm -hmm. back into the fold with uh, WWE to begin with. Uh huh. And we see him... As a heel again, doing these hilarious things on YouTube, uh, make, like talking about the Fat Hardy stuff that people would body shame him because he had gained a little <laughs> bit of weight. It yeah, was a lot of weight. It was, <laughs> it was. Um, but he shows a real humorous side while uh-huh. still being like a real hateful heel. A lot of people don't like that period of Ring of Honor, but I think Matt Hardy's work in that company is still tremendous stuff, even if that period of ring of honor isn't like the best as a whole. But before we get into like, um, you know, obviously the broken thing, what do you think of like just Matt Hardy so far at that point in his career? It's,
2: it's, it's funny when I first got into wrestling, like I really loved Matt Hardy. Uh, I, I don't know why he, he had a cool theme. I love that monster magnet theme a lot. Um, he had an interesting look, um, I tend to gravitate towards like the lesser of two brothers in brother tag teams. Um, like there's, I don't know. There's a lot going on there. A lot of like small factors that add up to me really appreciating Matt Hardy. Um, and then sort of like, as he got, as he left WWE and as he changed a lot, I, I didn't like him so much. And the broken stuff has like annoyed me in certain ways, but it's like, you look at just, you look at the scope of his career and it is fascinating how much he's changed. And it's not like he's doing, for the most part, I wouldn't call these different gimmicks, but it's, it's like you can see the evolution of sort of maybe an unstable person, uh, as they change, uh, throughout the years as their career like rises and falls in different promotions. And, and it's, it, it's fascinating to watch because it's, it's, it's like a 20 year arc and it's, it's one of the more interesting ones in that time period in wrestling, I think.
1: And like I feel like a lesser version of this as far as like it doesn't uh really span across the um across all the wide ways Matt Hardy's does. Uh uh-huh. but I think Edge really is a guy that uh kinda has like a weird career sure. path in weird different iterations of characters like Matt does. And I know that when I talk about Edge, like I'm usually like the person that's like really high on him. Uh-huh. But like when you look at his career and like all the different uh, ways he goes, and just the ways he's being, he's able to be a different heel in so many different ways. Not being able to, well, it's hard to really put into words how I feel about Edge because in some ways he plays the same character, which uh-huh. I can understand totally where someone is coming from. But the characters have different motivations, which is why I always felt Edge was a a little underappreciated. Is that his motivations are uh, aren't the same, and the way he goes about his motivations aren't the same. Sure. One minute he's a gold digger, the next moment he stole someone's girlfriend, the next time he is teaming with somebody purely so he can get ahead. Like he uses people. In different ways. He mm-hmm. is a very uh, scummy human being because he keeps using people, mm-hmm. which is always like my thing with Edge. But back to Matt Hardy, when he comes back to WWE, he still has some great stuff in him, even when it's not against Edge. He has the you know, um, United States title stuff against MVP. So
2: good. That, and, and he has this in 2007, he's like probably the best wrestler in the company because like other obvious examples like John Cena who's on the best run of his career gets injured late in the year and, and has to take a couple months off Benoit who is still incredible uh right up until his until his suicide and his murders like then misses half the year because of that because he kills himself and murders his family uh and like anybody else who would have like a strong chance of being the best wrestler sort of like has things working against them whereas Matt Hardy is like consistently there the entire year and is putting on Really good matches every week on TV and is like quietly the best wrestler in WWE, mm-hmm. even his stuff as ECW champion, totally. And then, with like, with like Mark Henry, when he's not like various people have various opinions on Mark Henry, but I don't think 2008 is necessarily the best year of Mark Henry's career. But he got good stuff out of Mark Henry, got good stuff out of like green as grass Jack Swagger,
1: yeah. And then obviously, there is the broken stuff, and depending on how like. People have a lot of, like, different mileage when it comes to how long they can take. uh uh-huh. Such an over-the-top gimmick. Yeah. But I think I love the ridiculous of it so much. uh uh-huh. Because it wasn't like it was immediate. You mentioned how over 20 years, it seems like you're, like, watching, like, the slowly, like, slow cracking of a mentally unstable person. Totally. And the broken stuff is when it happens, obviously. Is that he goes from being big money Matt, having the championship, and then he loses the title. And yeah. then this spirals into a crazy depression in which emerges broken Matt Hardy. Yeah. Who now has this white streak in his hair and is speaking in such a theatrical way. And it's so ridiculous. But because of the way the story went, it almost made sense that this guy that was so ego driven that when he get got that thing took from him, uh-huh. that he just completely cracked.
2: And it's like, I don't love it. Like, I thought it was kind of old when it started, though it's very fun at certain points. Like, I don't love it, but it is such a fascinating and such a successful uh, reimagining of, of a person's career. And like he is doing it. Dude, he's doing it twenty years in. He's doing it like when he's well into his forties, I think, at this point. Like he's he managed to make it work. And like it's he should be commended for that.
1: Now I wanna get to some people who didn't transition well or mm-hmm. ones that we may think didn't hold up when they got older as well. Before we uh talk about more people who were confused about. And at the top of the list, we have the Hulkster Mr. Uh, Terry Balea Hulk Hogan.
3: <laughs>
2: um, well, okay. First and foremost, like there, among a certain circle of fans, I think there's always that mindset that Hogan was never good, and he was always a bad worker, and and just got over because he was this big personality, and he had cool catchphrases, and and wrestling was just on a hot streak at that period of time, which partly true. But Hogan also had a ton of skill, and like you, you go back and you watch a whole lot of old WWF shows and like he's consistently having really good matches with people he probably shouldn't be having good matches with. Or even AWA um, before he jumped in. Or ship. totally, way before that. And AWA he's having great stuff with Nick Bockwinkle. He does great in Japan, no matter what he's doing, is is always enjoyable there. Um and so like I think that's one thing we need to mention that Hogan was Hogan to, had a lot of incentive least, to not be great, but I think Hogan was never
1: bad. At least to us, like, you know, you know, barring the people that will say Hulk Hogan was never good, which, like, I feel like if you actually go back and watch his work, sure, that could be disproven to some extent, even if you don't love him. Yeah, But we're starting this off saying that Hulk Hogan was good, mm-hmm. at least to some extent. Uh-huh. But then when we get to later on in his career... Um, when would you start when would you say he really noticeably <sighs> just declines
2: I don't I'm not super familiar with the early era of WCW for him where he's like feuding with Flair and they're doing the big dream match I know I've seen it uh, I have a fucking Hulk Hogan DVD collection it was one of the first DVDs I ever bought in wrestling um And like, I know I've seen that stuff, but like, I don't know necessarily how much it holds up today, but like that period of time, like his late WWF run, um, which feuding with like (laughs) Sid Vicious is like not great. And I think it's around that period of the early to mid nineties that you can pinpoint like he totally for valid reasons decides I don't have to work hard anymore and doesn't and and, dare I say never does ever again.
1: Yeah and we spent like a lot of time like explaining that we don't think stagnation is the same thing as getting worse. Uh uh-huh. but with Hogan because he stopped get, because he stopped putting in effort his matches did get worse. At least on a fundamental level because they're clunkier, yes, yes. They're slower, there's not that much drama in them anymore. There's not that much for you to buy into when it comes to Hogan at that point. Uh-huh. So just on that level of you know, I guess like the basic stuff, we're not even, we're like, I have to say that Hogan is actually getting worse because he's not even putting effort into doing like the basic things correctly, at least like, from my eye.
2: Like, even when, even when they're doing the huge blow off match with Sting at Star K 97, which is like something they had built up to for like two years, and that match has a lot of problems in and outside of the ring. Um, but like even there, I don't think he's putting in a whole lot of effort, and that's that's like the biggest thing that happened to WCW.
1: Like honestly, I think his best performance might be from that standpoint, from, from that from that time period, uh, when he loses the belt to Goldberg. Sure. Because totally. he is like super cocky, super arrogant, but also at the same time, you know, he's scared of Goldberg, uh-huh. and, and I think he conveys that well. Yeah. But other than that. No, like I, 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 there's nothing, and even when he's put in a position that you would think you could have like a good match with Shawn Michaels in 2005, he doesn't want to do the job to Michaels. So Michaels goes out there and like, all right, we're gonna do things my way now. Since you know,
2: I will say, I will say, in 03, he has that hardcore match with Vince McMahon at WrestleMania, and that's really fun. Yeah, that is a really good match. I like that. Like that's just a that's just a really. Interesting exploration of a relationship vis a vis blood, <laughs> and and uh, it's 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 maybe not the best executed wrestling, but it's really good professional wrestling.
1: then it's weird that I honestly think I enjoy almost all Vince McMahon's matches. I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna say all of them because there has to be some some I'm forgetting <laughs> where they're just really uh, gross, like some
2: some DX stuff, maybe
1: maybe. Maybe, but I was thinking if he ever put himself in a match with Trish, but I'm not sure he did. Yeah, maybe I'm not. I'm pretty sure he faced Stephanie before.
2: Yeah. Oh, like, he definitely did, yeah. Which uh yeah. Mm, for sure. the most part, for the most part, though, Vince is a very good question mark wrestler. Like, like you don't <laughs> want to say it, but it's like... <laughs> yeah. But he, like, he he, I mean, for better or for worse, he really gets... How professional wrestling works in certain situations, and that makes for very enjoyable matches.
1: Does it make you feel weird to say like Vince is a great wrestler? Like I know, like Uh. obviously, when people say uh Vince is the uh, greatest promoter wrestling wrestling mind of all time, like you know, people just kind of accept that as a fact. Uh huh. But. For you, does it feel weird to say Vince is a good wrestler?
2: No, I because I think it just it's indicative of the idea that like anything can work in any situation. It just have it has you have to match up the right thing with the right situation, and I think Vince knows how to do that in his matches.
1: Now, transition for the most so, part yeah, for tra- the most part. <laughs> transitioning to someone else who was a childhood favorite of mine, but as I've uh, gotten older and as he's gotten older, I just. Don't want to ever watch anything he does. But Rob Van Dam. hmm And this is one where it's like, I can still watch ECW Rob Van Dam and really yeah. enjoy it. I can yeah. still watch his stuff early on in WWF and really, really enjoy it. But I think once we get to like uh 2006, seven, six, six, Okay. Yeah, six or seven. I'm just like, uh, I'm, I think, I'm, I think, I'm like all oh, Rob Van Dammed out. Like, I don't need any more RVD. <laughs> and I think it's because, um, I think with RVD, he's one of those cases where someone loses loses their coolness, um, after like they're just doing the exact same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that he got worse as a character. I just think the coolness rubbed off which is a big part of his work. Not to mention the fact that as he gets older, um, his body just can't do the same things anymore. And Uh when your whole thing is being like this extremely athletic guy, you can't do that stuff as well. That's going to affect your work.
2: I I think it's a two-pronged problem. And I think to really get to the heart of why – someone like RVD didn't transition into his later age. Well, uh, I think we need to compare him to a similar wrestler who did do that. And it's Rey Mysterio. Um, right. Rey, Rey Mysterio being the impetus behind this entire podcast. Um, and uh, I think Rey is someone who had the stack, had the deck stacked against him very much in his career in that he gained a whole bunch of weight due to where, Uh, He was working in 2002 and later, Uh, some of that being natural muscle mass, some of that probably not. And he had a ton of really serious knee injuries, which like really fundamentally altered what he could do in the ring. And as he gets older, he is unable to do the athletic things that brought him to the dance, and he's getting surpassed by these younger, more athletic people who can do things that are even crazier than what he used to do. Um, and so he's forced to change his game and he's forced to like rethink the way that he can approach matches and rethink the way he can approach, um, the former spots that he used to do and maybe switch them up so he can still do them in certain ways. Um, and I think what really makes Rey Mysterio work is like he has such a, such a good grasp of like psychology and has a good grasp of like how someone like him wrestling against other people of various different sizes and experience levels should work and being able to execute that well rob van dam on the other hand as he gets older he doesn't really change up his style all that much and and sort of i think tries to do the same stuff he used to do and i think a lot of that might come from the fact he's very close to sabu who uh is a person who continues to do that to this day despite the fact that his body is totally broken down um, and I think RVD, and you can go back and watch all of his old matches, and you can see that this sort of thing never really popped up a lot. I think he never really got that grasp of like how to put together a compelling wrestling match. He just knew how to do like a cool wrestling match. And that's, that's, that's where it falls apart. Cause as you get older, like you can't do the cool stuff anymore.
1: Yeah, and like some people, we mentioned Negro Casas, like some people are able to still be cool. Uh-huh. Uh when your whole thing is being uh you know 420 uh <laughs> skater dude Sm-
2: smoke weed every day
1: <laughs> um you know it's oh, like what if Matt Riddle is still doing this
2: I was going to say yeah
1: like Matt like the whole charm of Matt Riddle is going to be gone and that I think I think that's Ooh. scarier than him being C- Kurt Angle like he might yeah, be a mix of like Kurt Angle and Rob Van Dam
2: he's already in his 30s man like time is ticking <laughs>
1: Yeah, like, he might wind up as a combination of both those guys, which is oh, not man. good. But Rob is someone that really is affected by time and place. Uh-huh. And maybe it's not fair on some level to say that Rob Van Dam, Rob Van Dam's early work doesn't age well. But sure. But I can sure as hell say that him doing the same act in mm. the 2010s isn't
2: working at all. Yeah, and I, like, you need... I think in, other than in very few examples, like you need to adapt your stuff and update your stuff with the changing times. And like, for the most part, if you don't do that, you're fucked.
1: Now to go to more uh, guys responsible for the current wrestling landscape, as far as independent
2: wrestling, two of the forefathers of it. Scott Steiner? (laughs) Because <laughs> I'm, cause I'm looking at this list that we've drawn up, and I'm like, oh man, Scott Steiner's next. I love him jumping around. I know, I know. <laughs> and then Samoa Joe and Loki just seemed like a
1: uh-huh. more natural guys to transition to. Because Ooh. these guys are ones that come from a time period where, if you were watching in the early 2000s, and you're watching now, you've seen these guys like wrestling since real young to now. And uh-huh. obviously that's not me. I didn't get introduced to either of these guys until they were well into TNA. Yeah. So that would have been like 2005. But, as I've watched Samoa Joe and as I've watched Low Key, for what has been a pretty deceptive good amount of time, mm-hmm. given my age, I think,
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I gotta say, like Joe is the one that um, definitely uh gets to me the most although I do like although on, like we touched on with the AJ Styles podcast a lot of it that he didn't um, have control of
2: yeah a lot of it's a lot of it's things like having a serious injury that you can see still sticks with him today in taking a drop kick bump onto a set of steps in 2007 against sting I think uh, and it like he was never the same after that. There's that. There's there's just the general horror show that is TNA booking throughout that period of time, in which he is um, made to be a big deal, and then uh, very much so is not a big deal anymore, and does a whole bunch of nothing for a very long time. There's there's those sorts of things. Yeah, that it's not so much his fault, but we've also talked about the fact that like what makes someone a great wrestler is going above and beyond uh, the 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 hand you've been dealt. And and making do with with what you've got.
1: So, we do need to say that early Samoa Joe, peak Samoa Joe, uh-huh. is the fucking man. Like, yeah. <laughs> would you say that peak Samoa Joe is your favorite wrestler ever?
2: Oh, I mean, no. But I think I think peak Samoa Joe is as good as any wrestler has ever been. Right. Like mm-hmm. if peak Samoa Joe had if Peak Samoa Joe was twice as long as it was, if it was six years or eight years instead of three or four, I think we would talk about Joe as the greatest of all time.
1: Oh yeah, without a doubt in my mind that would be the case. If we got two thousand two through two thousand six Samoa Joe up until maybe at least twenty ten. Uh huh. I feel like that changes the story on him. Yeah. But now Loki is a guy where I think early Loki is one of my favorite wrestlers to watch. Sure, like not to say he is like an amazing, like all-time great-level guy, but as far as just like watching someone, I don't think I get much more fascination or uh-huh. enjoyment than out of anyone else than watching Loki because, because like, w- go ahead, because the way he moves, like, yeah, everything about his um demeanor. His posture is even different. Like, <laughs> he's such a unique figure. And on top of the fact that uh, all the moves he's doing are so unique. Like, he's like a living, breathing martial arts movie. And I mean sure. it in, like, the best way possible. Sure, sure, And sure. that, like, if I was to watch, like, an old-school martial arts movie where someone is just taking on the world, I believe the real-life version of that would be low-key.
2: Uh-huh. And the thing about his career is that like he I mean he really fucks himself over. Like he he really just for better or for worse uh thinks very highly of himself and gets in a whole lot of shit with every promotion he's ever worked for and it ruins him to the point that like he's he's just not working much after 2010 or so and retires uh several times and comes back to wrestling and and burns more bridges <laughs> and retires again and comes back to wrestling and and so on and so forth. And it's and it's weird because like like I don't know if anyone else has like ever been that level of just fantastic wrestler of someone who felt like the freshest thing in the world who then just threw it all away. And like we compare him to Lesnar, but Lesnar came back eventually and has had the the better run of his career. And Loki is just, like,
1: even when he's in good spots, they'll be mm-hmm. making good money. He could be, like, a regular, um, like, you no, know, top star in his division. Because he was always, never, like, a top, top guy outside of, uh, Ring of Honor. Even uh-huh. never being Ring of Honor's top star. But, like, in TNA, X Division stuff is always limited, to Sometimes tag team stuff. Um when he's in Japan it's a lot of junior stuff. Uh-huh. Like, even when he's in Japan like the infamous story of him wearing the Hitman suit during that Wrestle Kingdom Triple Threat. Uh-huh. I was like, "Dude, like what are you doing?
2: <laughs> like there's not you didn't need to do that. <laughs> it's just he wanted to." And it's he's the Bruiser Brody and instead of being stabbed in Puerto Rico like he's he's just totally burned every bridge he's ever found and continues to work. And like I still way, think he's way better wrestler though. <laughs> way better than Bruiser Pretty. <laughs> and like I don't even
1: think he's bad at as often <sighs> as uh I guess like some people think he is. As a wrestler? Maybe, like, as a wrestler I don't think he's terrible. No,
2: nah, he's still enough. good today.
1: And I thought the like just as recently the Sammy Callahan match. Um, but he had an AEW, which I was not looking forward to at all. wound up being surprisingly <laughs> really good. I thought, yep. even though the commentary on that match was oh, absolutely
2: yeah. awful. Jesus, did you did you see that match? No, but like I I know what AEW commentary is like, <laughs> you know, you and know. I think you talked to me about it. Case talked to me about it. Someone else on Wrestling with Words talked to me about it. It was it was not it was not a singular thing. It was pervasive. People hated it.
1: Yeah, it, like it kept going and going and going and going and that's like the only bad thing about that match, other than the finish. But mm. yeah, I thought Loki that was his best performance in years. Sure, but I think a lot of Loki is more uh, disappointment at what mm-hmm. could have been because Loki could have like transitioned into being like this mm-hmm. all time great and you can be ass kicker.
2: Dude, you can still see it. Like he still has an aura today, but it's like. Does. It's just, it's just the fact, it's the knowledge of the fact that he threw it away. And with
1: the idea of someone, like, almost, like, throwing away their potential, Mm. I want to get into two people that are, like, (laughs) you (laughs) know... They always say it when it comes to Randy Orton, but like if okay. you could make a sports entertainer from the ground up mogul, it would look like it would look
2: like Randy Orton. <laughs> that wasn't even a Moggle. That was I don't know what you said there. It didn't it didn't sound like JBL or a bastardization of the word Michael. It was, wasn't, I don't know it wasn't was. really trying to do JBL, it was just a really bad accent. <laughs> sure, 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 sure.
1: But Randy Orton is like this. He's this, uh, I don't know how to describe it. He's like this perfect, he's like, well, WWE presents as like this perfect wrestler. Uh-huh. But as a viewer, I don't think I really get that from Orton, except sure. a couple of times mm-hmm. in his career. Uh-huh. And I think the fact that they've uh, presented him as this for so long, uh is why he hasn't transitioned well, because they're still going with this idea that interesting, you know, perfect sports entertainer. And that's what they've been doing with him for over 10 years at this point.
2: If he wasn't in WWE, if he was say in the Carl Anderson position in new Japan, uh, if he was just doing that today and wasn't touted as like this all time great by the WWE, uh, hype machine, would you think he's still a disappointment as a wrestler?
1: Um, probably not, because a lot of it has to do with the fact that WWE is placing expectations on Randy Orton to be sure. amazing.
2: Sure, sure, and sure. And
1: sometimes people will look at a wrestler and be like, I expect something good out of this guy or girl because of how they look. They have uh-huh. a look that, would, that um, you would assume breeds to being a great wrestler. Totally. But when you have the company narrative pounded Mm. (laughs) on top of you time and time again, on top of like, uh, already having that look that does create an expectation that you're, if you're not getting the best thing ever, Uh then you're
2: getting a disappointment. And on top of that, you have past matches in which he's really great. And it's just, it's not there anymore. It's just inconsistent. And it's all because of him. Like it's, it's, Completely down to his effort, he is still booked very strongly throughout his career. Even at his worst, he's doing like he's he's doing like the Evolution two stuff, in which like he's still a very major heel figure on the roster, and like giving him his own stable. Uh, yeah, totally, completed. his own stable of like the guys that they wanted to become the new generation. Like that's a, that's a very important and very uh, very focused on thing.
1: Um, and. In- this goes to how many chances they've given Randy Orton. Sure. And the fact that it has never clicked on that level. Like, you know, when people always talk about the like Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, and there's always this weird discussion about Randy Orton. And it's like, yeah, WWE has presented him as this mm-hmm. big name. But even if we... Because Randy Orton, a, whole, a big chunk of his career, most of his career really, is based on the pre-network pay-per-view-wise era yeah and on shows that he's main evented maybe i'm wrong but i don't think there's ever been a um, significant boost in having randy orton on top as a draw i don't think on house shows they have ever shown randy Mm. orton as being like a major draw on that circuit either
2: i remember hearing a figure back in the day that the only people who actually um, spurred any sort of major change in pay-per-view buys, like comparing one pay-per-view to the next, or comparing uh, a pay-per-view in 2010 to the uh, pay-per-view in the corresponding month of the year before or the year after, the only two people who ever like really spurred any sort of positive change were Triple H and Jeff Hardy.
1: Yeah, and then when you look at house shows, Rey Mysterio was a uh-huh. notable house show draw. Obviously, John Cena Mm -hmm. And then number
2: number one and number two baby faces in the company, yeah.
1: And then even if you wanted to throw something in like merchandise sales, I don't think Randy Orton's ever been that kind of guy when it came to merch. Uh huh. And especially how like fast CM Punk caught fire with his merchandise, and on top of that is just CM Punk having nice merchandise that people would wear, and Randy (laughs) Orton having like these almost like affliction shirts
2: there was one randy orton shirt i liked i don't remember what it was i think dan brought it up on our ses recently but like you're you're getting at all this like potential where randy has all this incredible potential and clearly has so much skill but just doesn't utilize it because i guess he's complacent which is a very common thread in wwe i feel um and it's it's kind of a bummer because like you compare him to other guys who are like real young prodigies, like Junakiyama if you want to do – or Jumbo Saruto, we mentioned him too. If you want to do Matt Riddle, you can do Matt Riddle. They're all guys who put a ton of effort into their stuff, and after a certain point, you don't get that from Morton.
1: And I think this would be a good time to introduce John Cena because John Cena is a guy that obviously coming in the same year to the main uh-huh. roster as Randy Orton did, he wasn't pegged on that same prodigy yeah. level like Orton, where Orton was picked to be an evolution and he was going to be handcrafted from the coal that turns into a diamond. I think that's how the promo went. But when you look at John Cena, I think he's a guy that clearly gets better Mm -hmm. as time goes on because he has to work for everything he has because he's behind Orton and Batista and and Brock Lesnar.
2: Yeah, he is we talked a lot about AJ Styles being an incredibly hard worker in that podcast a couple months ago. Um, and that's certainly true, but like John Cena, man, big lug works hard.
1: Yeah. And I think with John Cena, like it's as his career trying to, um, dwindle down, it's going to get lost uh-huh. how much he was actually behind those guys. Sure. Because I mean, yeah, but he in with a weird, um, uh, deacon batista gimmick The where he's like put with devon and that's maybe not the best way to have debuted him but once they put him with evolution and he's in there with triple h Flair, and orton you can see where they're headed with him mm-hmm. and i think it's just the fact that john cena even when it when he's not like he was never meant to be the face of the company? I don't think so. But as time goes on, and as he gets more popular and more popular, and he starts to blow by Orton and Batista, and as Brock Lesnar leaves, it really just shows that John Cena just kept finding ways to make the company fall in love with him. Uh huh. And while Batista, I think, did great work as his um, first run was starting to wind down. I thought he was really good in his second run, although it was a case of wrong place,
3: wrong (laughs) time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think if you just compare Cena to Orton and how hard Cena had to work compared to how Orton had to work. Cena's a case of transitioning well, Mm -hmm. you know, to being the top guy when I don't think that was ever the
2: plan. Yeah. And like I don't think I think Cena's best work was ten years ago um though he's not substantially worse today he's just changed so much as a as as an athlete and has had to adapt to certain things and we mentioned earlier he's got some some really bad habits that are very annoying but for the most part he's still incredible and i and i wouldn't say that he's he's stagnated at all or gotten worse at all but randy randy's like textbook definition of of either stagnation or getting worse and it stinks because, like, he occasionally hits those peaks, and those peaks are really Sometimes good.
1: Randy Orton is, like, really brilliant. But, uh-huh. then, but then it's like, I think the best stuff Randy Orton has done the last few years was against Daniel Bryan. Yeah. But he like Daniel Bryan is also the person I think is the greatest wrestler ever, and that was during, like, this point in time where Bryan, if you are not having a great match with him, there's something wrong. Because yeah. he's going out there every week and tearing the house down. Hmm. So it'd be easy to go out there and have a great match with Brian at that point.
2: Um, something I'd like to ask you: We're talking about how Orton never got better because he chose not to. Is that a worse sin than getting better because you made the wrong choice artistically, like you you chose to do a certain gimmick or a certain shtick that just didn't pan out the way that fans wanted or the way that you as a viewer wanted?
1: Um, yeah, because even if something doesn't land, you at least tried. Sure. You at least put in an effort to do something different, to do something creative. And uh-huh. even if it doesn't wind up uh, sticking the way you would want it to, you at least give it a, a solid try. Like Bray mm-hmm. Wyatt, even if the Bray Wyatt character doesn't land the way I would assume Bray would want it to. I can't blame him for that Like on a few reasons. A lot of it with the, has to do with the fact that with a character like that, the company itself has to put a lot of care and mm-hmm. um, effort into the presentation and how protected he is. And he can put in all the effort he wants into the writing, into his mannerisms, into his body language. If the company isn't going to put any uh, effort into making him seem credible, then all that effort is for naught. Yeah. Randy Orton, on the other hand, they can put him in all these positions and continually I mean continuously, he can phone it in, do the most basic Randy Orton performance you can possibly get. And that's not the company's fault at that point. Although I'm not gonna say they've booked Randy Orton perfectly, but if you look at just pure um booking decisions over the last 13 years of Randy being presented as a top star. They've given him so many chances to be that guy. And after all that time, if you still can't do it and they're still doing it now in 2017, then that does fall on you. Uh But Barry Windham is one that we put down here that I'm actually curious on because I think Windham is a lot of it has to do with injuries.
2: Mm, Very much so, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think you had uh, posed this question at some point when we were planning this episode. Is, that, is it fair to put someone down as they didn't transition well as they got older if their body is failing them at such an alarming rate?
2: Yeah, because we we mentioned a little bit ago Samoa Joe and Loki where um, Loki very much chose to ruin his career and to prevent any forward momentum or any positive change or any progression to become, like, an all-time great. Uh, and Joe, for a variety of reasons that weren't necessarily all up to him, uh, was robbed of that sort of opportunity. And I think Wyndham definitely falls in that latter car- ladder category, where, like, he was so great when he was young, but, like, a lot of injuries mounted up and prevented him from being an all-time great, even though he – I do think very highly of him still.
1: Yeah. And I think when you bring up Wyndham, naturally Dustin Rhodes or gold Dustin Rhodes or gold dust will get brought up. Totally. And Dustin, while he had a, he came in very, very hot. um, I think his hardships are different than Barry's because one, his father was still in the company. While Dustin was there. So whether it be in WWF or in WCW. You still have the shadow of Dusty. Very much over Dustin. Because Dusty is still there. In big capacities. Like being a booker. Like being a commentator. Like being an on-screen personality. And Dustin had his demons. uh, Drug issues. And he's a guy where. We just talked about. Is it a worse sin. To try. And have it not connect or to just put in no effort after being continuously given opportunities. And Dustin, I think he delivered when given opportunities, but he also took a chance when he didn't have to either. Mm. I think he could have easily coasted off of being the son of Dusty Rhodes. I think. Okay, go ahead. But he didn't. And he took a huge chance um pitching the pitching the gold dust thing and it for some for, for some people completely changes his career in a bad way uh-huh but once we get past the initial uh shock value of the character and once we transition into the early 2000s and even his return in 2013 i think because he settled into being a combination of dustin and gold dust he is just a really great worker on top of having a really interesting character.
2: Um, I think the whole Dustin angle comes down to two things. One of which we brought up earlier, which was the idea that like, um, a lot of, a lot of what it takes to transition well into the later stages of your career is just like perfecting the sort of fundamentals, the rock solid, uh, things you do every match in and out of the ring. Um, and I think Dustin is most certainly someone who has done that, who is like I guarantee you just the easiest person in the world to work. Like you would just you could sleepwalk your way through a match with Dustin, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it's oh, just that's it's a great super easy. Yeah, it's, that's a great skill to have when you're wrestling five days a week. Um and so like fundamentally on an execution basis, like he is incredible and like he is one of my favorite people to watch in the company because he just doesn't fuck up. And, like, I think really highly of that. More importantly, though, um, this was something that was brought up, I don't remember by who, uh, but someone brought this up during the GWE process. And they talked about how Dustin had a great skill to make any sort of outlandish character work, and how that was taken to extremes by Vince McMahon and WWE and Vince Russo and and that cohort. Um, But I think there's something to be said that, so much of why I think Goldust has, well, so much of why I think Dustin has transitioned into the later stage of his his career so well is that like he put so much effort into making shitty and weird and um, freaky gimmicks work. Like he 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 has put so much effort into them to the point that like I no longer am weirded out by them and I find them just more endearing. And like that's I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. It takes a lot of skill.
1: Yeah, and it's not to say that he hasn't had bad points in his career, sure. notably in TNA as um, uh-huh. Black Rain, yeah. which is, and a lot of that
2: a lot of that has to do with substance abuse.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that uh, goes back to the fact that he has had uh, downfalls due to addiction,
2: but uh-huh. he
1: is someone that does overcome it. And then even in 2013, in a angle that wasn't really about him, he yeah. was the shining light of a authority versus the rose family program coming yep. in and seeing dustin rose just be an absolute beast in the ring <laughs> and have him and, like he's like flying around which is absolutely nuts
2: yeah for a man that age and it's like you you pitch the idea to someone in 2003 10 years earlier you pitch the idea of them of like hey Gold Dust and his little brother, who isn't even wrestling yet, they're gonna feud with Vince McMahon. How do you feel about that? And they'll be like, "Oh, it sounds like shit," but ten years later, it's great. And like that's a lot of that. A lot of that is on Dustin's back.
1: And one person that, man, he has a real weird uh, reputation. Like, there's no, I know some people that absolutely hate.
2: Is it
3: Scott
1: Steiner again? Everything is Scott Steiner.
2: <laughs> Everything is Scott Steiner.
1: But um, some people absolutely hate this person. But it's Namuchi Marufuji. Mm-hmm. Namuchi Marufuji, my mistake. Mm-hmm. But uh, Marufuji early on, um, even before starting the team with Kenta, is pretty well liked. Uh uh-huh. And as time goes on, he might be another RVD case. Honestly. Where continually, like continuously doing the same thing um, sort over of, and over I again, think. yeah, is what wears off his novelty, along uh-huh. with the fact that he's getting older. He's been killing himself in these crazy matches. He's transitioned. He's transitioned into being um, the Booker to being the president. So it's like wrestling isn't his main thing at this point because there's so much other stuff on his fleet but it doesn't change the fact of that I don't think Mara Fuji has transitioned well in age
2: it's uh I think it's a complicated issue um earlier today friend of the show Dan uh Chikara fan Dan Galazzo Dan I don't know actually how to pronounce that um regardless big wrestling twitter person you almost certainly know if you've if you're listening to this podcast uh tweeted some great gifts of uh a couple of the Kenta vs Naomichi Marafuji matches from 2006 Noah, which are uh some really cool matches that I, I remember very fondly. And as I was thinking about this podcast and as I was looking at those gifs earlier today, I was thinking about like why that Marafuji is dead to me, like why I I don't really enjoy Marafuji much at all these days. Um, and it's some of it's his execution. Like he's just gotten older, and he can't quite do as as crazy um, moves in the ring as because he used to be able to. Like
1: you know, let's be um, honest here: is that like early Marafuji is uh-huh. so damn athletic and crisp, totally and just straight up, just awesome to watch. Yep. Like, I really enjoy watching early Loki. I really enjoy um, early crazy man, well, even crazier than now Kota Ibushi, but like Mara Fuji, I think is like almost like a really great, um, middle ground between those two.
2: Sure, And, you know, as you get into your late thirties, you obviously lose a lot of that. And I think he recognized that. And, in and, and also I think the heavyweight, the, the move up to heavyweight was a big change for him and changed his career arc fundamentally. Um, and so I think as he got older and as he got heavier, he realized he couldn't do those same things and decided he wanted to keep that weird, like esoteric spotty style he had and changed it up a little bit um, and focused less on the athletics and more on just like how weird it could be. And I think that's, what's really affected me that it's, it's no longer like a person doing crazy athletic things because he can, it's like doing crazy non-athletic things because he feels he has to yeah and he, and he and he doesn't have any other recourse to work around his limitations
1: i still think occasionally we'll get a really good or great sure match i like think
2: that. i think at least two of those suzuki matches from 2015 are great
1: yeah i liked um yeah i like the first two I mean, sure maybe the last two a lot i like the okada match a lot from last year well, Dia two kind of matches. But I thought both of those were good. So it's not uh-huh. like his uh, match quality uh, is just completely dead. Sure. But he's someone where when you watch him, it feels um, lifeless, honestly. And
2: sorta because of, it's it's part of that's like just the character he is. He's not someone who emotes a lot.
1: And I think it just comes. He around... takes
2: he takes so much from Asawa. That's really what it is.
1: It is. He really is like a. He really is masawa's boy. Like, what do you think about uh-huh. that? Like, he so much. Like, even down to when masawa got older, he was still doing his weird offense because he thinks he has to. <laughs> uh huh. But with Mara Fuji, I think it does feel more lifeless than I want it to be because yeah. I can take stoicism, but I can't take um. I can take indifference.
2: Sto- indifference. Is that it? Is that what it is? I don't know.
1: I don't know because, because like
2: that's that's the sort of word I describe. Um, Okada as. You know what I mean?
1: Do you mean Okada wrestles indifferent, or do you have indifference towards him?
5: No, no, I,
2: I think he wrestles indifferently.
1: <laughs> okay, I was just making sure. Um, no, I don't think he wrestles indifferently. I think it is the fact that, uh, I almost get what he's going for. uh uh-huh. I think I do. I understand the stoicism, and I can appreciate stoicism, but... I just don't think he's the type of person that does that act very well. Sure. Whereas, if you are indifferent, like if you think Okada wrestles indifferently, well, I guess we can get into Okada now since, you, for some reason, you put him on this list, which I don't know why. But that was a joke. <laughs> he's a fu- you- I'm reading this off of a Google doc, and in parentheses sure. in- in- it says, "Fuck you." He counts.
2: It's I don't know. It's funny because uh, a friend of the show, Chad Campbell, has been recently going through uh, some of. Okada's earliest matches in New Japan. And I talked to him a little bit about that. And I was like, his earlier stuff is so much more palatable compared to his modern stuff, which for obvious reasons uh, has a lot of limitations and problems in my mind. Um, But at the same time, it's weird because like, with the Ishii match last year and the Shibata match this year, I think in some ways he's doing the best uh, work that he's done in his career. Um, And so it gets to this problem that I think he is just still too young. He's not even 30 yet. And it's hard to, it's hard for me to take, like, he does have a long career for being not even 30, but like, it's hard for me to, like, look at his career and judge whether or not he has transitioned well because there's just not enough material
1: yet. I guess we can put it in the realm of a uh, hypothetical Zen. Is that sure. when I look at Okada, I, see someone that as they get older, like I think he's already super smart, honestly. I think he gets wrestling. And I think that as he gets older, he'll be an example of someone that continuously just gets smarter. Um almost like a way similar to like a like Styles. Because Styles I think toned it down a lot while still being creative. He gets wrestling in such a fundamental basic solid way uh-huh. that as he gets older just that's just gonna grow exponentially. So when he's in a position to have a big title match with a um with a Harumu Takahashi or a Jay White possibly. That he'll be ready for that moment because he understands wrestling, he understands wrestling in the main event. But do you think that Okada will transition well as far as like what do you think of um him right now?
2: I think 2017 is a very interesting year for him in that it has thematically shown that he is at his wits end um, and is getting to the point where like, he is no longer this undeniable force as the, the top star of the company. Um, and and they, regardless of whether or not like, he is still the top star of the company and will continue to be for a very long time. But they're, they're toying with the idea in kayfabe that he's not, that he's losing that position. Um, and I think a lot of where he goes in the future depends on what comes of uh that storyline, and specifically what happens when the other shoe drops and he loses that WGP heavyweight title and what he does after it. Because we've seen it happen in the past in 2015, in which he does the arc of losing to Tanahashi at the Dome and crying and then feuds with Bad Luck Folly for a couple months and then just beats AJ and goes on what I think is somewhat of a celebratory tour and just sort of like sleepwalks through a big tidal rain and then loses it to Naito and then wins it back from Naito. Um, and I think that reign after that, that fourth reign is, is this current reign is the good one, in which he's doing like these long matches that, like I have differing opinions on, but it's more thematically interesting. I think what comes after this is what depends, is like what determines where he goes, because mm-hmm. like they could easily screw it up and just like go back to the same old tired formula of like he feuds with folly for a couple months and then just doesn't progress and wins back the title again. But if they don't do that, like, I think there's a good chance that he does like improve in some way.
1: Do you think that he has um, shown the temperament to be able to transition into this uh, grumpy asshole that's kind of like necessary in some ways when it comes to
2: being the top guy in Puro? I, I don't know because like so much of like what he does in the ring comes across to me as indifference and it occasionally flares up. And when it flares up, it's something I really love. Like, In the Ishii match and the Shibata match, in which he's like challenged and actually has has to put in like a great amount of effort. Um, And when that effort doesn't feel super hammy or super dramatic for drama's sake, like I would point to the Omega matches in that regard, um, when it's not overly dramatic, I think it's incredible. But I don't know if I see that often enough to say that he has it to the point where, to the point where like it's going to be defining factor in the latter part of his career
1: and i don't think it necessarily should be either but i think i'm intrigued by the prospect of an okada who just after everything he's been through whether just the go from the career arc of facing tanahashi going back and forth with him uh-huh. he finally beats tanahashi and thinks he's done with him for good uh-huh. aj styles comes in and takes his title he doesn't get the title back until that next year uh, at Dominion. Yeah. And he shows signs of cracking, but he gets it back. So I'm mean, yeah. in the process of if he ever just loses control.
2: Yeah, see, that's what I that's what I would like to see. Is I, I would like to see not the signs of him cracking. I want to see him crack. I want to see him get humiliated. Like he was in 2015 at the dome. And I want to see him improve on that as opposed to just like, Oh, I'm going to go wrestle folly for a bit. And then, and then be AJ because yeah. that's just what I do. You know what I mean? It's, it's so much, so much, of it just, so much of it is like booking and that's out of his hands, but I'm not sure if he necessarily takes that booking and, and makes it into gold in the same way that I would point to someone like John Cena, who has booked, somewhat similar similarly early in his WWE career, but put in a ton of effort in everything he did.
1: Yeah. I do think it's like, no, that's sorry to say that we're saying this based on like five years of Okada, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And while there's always like, it's always going to be fine to say whether you like, don't like, or just feel indifferent towards the guy. Sure. I think ultimately, it is just going to be a wait and see on how exactly things go with them because this is a completely yeah. different company because than it even st- was in 2012.
2: Yeah, we're still so in the moment that it's it's impossible to judge.
1: Now, I me- I missed over a couple of people, but purposely because I want to get to the idea of like being well, limiting your schedule and maybe that being your transition. Because there's a couple of people here like Mike Quackenbush and like mm. an Undertaker where the limiting, oh, the, limiting, oh, how, the limiting of how much they wrestled What um, a duo. Mike Quackenbush <laughs> and the
3: Undertaker.
1: <laughs> but the limiting of how much they wrestled um, uh-huh. can be their transition into uh-huh. doing other things in life, in wrestling, or just moving on. And is a weird case because he wanted to retire multiple times he was thinking about retiring in the 1990s yep. and then he just keeps wrestling and then now at this year's wrestlemania he had that uh i'm not going to i'm not going to say shitty no shitty no nah, bad <laughs> it was a it's a match i'm not sure a lot of people um God, i don't know how to phrase this cuz people I think when I talk about that match against Roman Reigns are like so sad when I talk about it that I'm not sure uh, there's any actual uh, real discourse on the match mm, because sure. everyone just kind of feels sad about totally. what happened. Of course. That sad that the tombstone spot looks so bad or I sad think... that
2: he moves so slow. Totally. I think similarly in the way that there is very little honest discourse or discussion regarding Eddie Guerrero and Owen Hart.
1: Yeah. But I think Undertaker and how he limited his schedule in the last few years, whether it be the Shawn Michaels pair of matches, the Triple H pair of matches, the CM Punk match, um, all these things that people hail as like all-time great Mm -hmm. WrestleMania matches, do you think that him preserving those moments for the biggest stage is a great transition or good transition. Or is it one that, uh, I don't know. doesn't have the same, doesn't have enough volume to say whether or not it succeeded. Um, let me put
2: it this way. Since. Okay. So 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, last five years, like takers had five matches. Well, no, it's more than that. Actually last five years, takers had seven matches. Or eight. I don't even fucking remember at this point. Uh, last couple of years, Taker has had less than 10 matches, we shall say. Um, some of those have been really good. Some of them have been very bad. Uh, if The Undertaker was still doing a full time or even anything approaching a full time schedule after 2011 or so, um, those 10 matches would rack up real quick and he would be completely unable to do anything more, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I think by rationing out these matches once a year or a couple times a year in a few cases, um, it did really help because it gave us a couple of really great matches. And more importantly, I think something that Undertaker has always succeeded at, if not uh, match quality, and I I think his match quality has waned at certain points in his career, Um, those matches always gave us really good moments. And, like, rationing those out and making them as big as they could possibly be is something WWE doesn't do a lot. But they managed to do it well with him.
1: Yeah, and I think the fact that he was in such bad shape, still is in such Uh bad shape. Yeah. And that he did have to limit it, not just because, like, not because he is lazy, but because, like, he has to... Or unless he wants to meet like, his physical
2: demise. Because the man, like, literally, like, navigates around in a wheelchair and crutches, yeah.
1: So, it's a necessity, but I also think that his performances, well, in a good five of those matches that he's had since 2009 to now, were at least very good. And Uh I know that the Roman Reigns match is just going to be one... That gets looked back on in a really
2: weird way. And partially, partially of course, due to the perception of Roman.
1: Yeah, the perception of Roman, the entire atmosphere for that match, um, the aftermath of Taker leaving his stuff in the ring, like that's just going to be a weird match for a lot of people. Uh-huh. But I think I appreciate the idea of someone realizing maybe I can't do full-time anymore and making their stuff mean something. Mm-hmm. At least usually, um. But Mike Quackenbush, I hate saying his name. I know it's a dumb name. I I really do. I hate I. Mike Quackenbush. How many times has he wrestled? I guess the past. Well, let's let's do the same thing for sake. Let's like how many times has Mike Quackenbush wrestled the last eight years?
2: Are we talking Mike Quackenbush or someone who is not Mike Quackenbush, but is Mike Quackenbush? Uh, I guess we can do both. Well, since um wanna say twenty twelve, Mike's only had four matches, mm-hmm. I think. Um four matches as Quick has had a number of other matches as a variety of masked characters in Chikara yeah. as they are wont to do, uh but nothing serious. Mostly joke characters, mostly fan favorite comedy characters. Um, but has had four matches as himself, and those are what I would describe as his four serious matches. Um, and that's an even smaller number than uh, the Undertaker in a similar period of time, though. Quack's got the the other stuff with the other gimmicks. Um, it's hard to compare the two because they, I mean they 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 strive to achieve such different things, but like. Right in a lot of ways because Quack's not so broken down and also tries to achieve less. I think overachieving is, is an ultimate um, fundamental mistake. A lot of wrestlers have, Uh, I think in trying to achieve less, he often has better matches in that period of time.
1: So obviously he has a lot on his plate doing a lot of the Jakara video editing, Mm -hmm. being the owner, uh, being a commentator. Like he has a lot on his plate as is, Dealing with the inner workings and presentation of Chikara, so do you think that he still puts in a quality effort when he does show up as Mike Quackenbush and decides to go in there with the in the ring with Drew Gulak or Zachary oh, sure. Jr.? Oh
2: sure. Oh sure. He's still he's still putting in a hundred percent against against like against contemporaries and against legends who came before him and against students, like all sorts of different situations. Um, Some of which were like congratulatory retirement tours, some of which were farewell matches for one of his students. Some of them were just a dream match with someone who is falsely described as the greatest technical wrestler in the world. Um, And I think through all of those, he's putting in just as much effort as he put in, during, like, 1999, during 2004, during 2011. Like, he's he's the same Mike Quackenbush he always was. Whether or not you like that is up for debate, but I, I think he's still putting in, like, as much effort.
1: Now that we've reached the end here of, like, what we believe is people transitioning, one batch of wrestlers who I want to talk about but don't fit into any of these categories because we don't have enough footage Mm -hmm. are Nick Bockwinkle, Billy Robinson, Negro Navarro and Black Terry and Bockwinkle and Robinson. This comes from them. We have footage of them in the late seventies, early eighties for for Bockwinkle. It goes even further to uh, even the late eighties, but we don't have their, their work from the early seventies late 60s or even before that where we could really say how how we really see how they were when they were younger performers. Uh-huh. And with Negro Navarro and Black Terry, as IWG, uh, um, IWRG starts gaining steam in 2008-2009 and people start falling in, love, falling in love with those two, we don't have a lot of footage of them from the 1990s or yeah. the early 2000s or the 1980s. But we have footage of all these performers in their late 40s, early 50s. So while they're great performers as um, quote-unquote old men, we can't really say they transition well because we don't know what happened with them as they got older.
2: Well, it's an interesting point because you describe them as great wrestlers, and that's certainly how I describe all of these people. These are all people that I would place very highly in my list of, like, greatest wrestlers ever. They're people I love to watch in any situation. Um, And it's interesting because we spent this whole podcast talking about how well people transition into the later years of their career and the sorts of judgments that we make based upon that. If someone is still great later in their career, but is still lesser than they were earlier, is that a bad thing? Uh, That's...
1: No, I don't. I don't think so. I feel like uh, Jinichiro Tenryu might sure, be totally. another one like this, where we do have we do have a lot of early Tenryu when oh. he first transitions from sumo, but even in that, and and when, even when he gets older, like in uh, mid two thousands, Noah, I think he's really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. He might not be as good as I would say he was in uh, nineteen ninety. Sure. 1989. But I still think Tenryu was always really good. Or the same thing with um, Kiyoshi Tamura, who had like, okay. a lot of, who has a lot less matches under his belt, but yes. I can still watch um, 1993 Kiyoshi Tamura and really enjoy it, and then watch him versus Kosaka from 2004 and be like, damn, that's still a really great wrestler, even if totally. it's not, um, even if it's maybe not as good. As that stuff. but So
2: it's not, it's, it's, the important factor here then is, is, um, is relative quality, I suppose, as opposed to comparative quality. Like not quality compared to what you used to be, but the quality that you are currently.
1: Yeah, and I think with these four guys, it's the fact that we don't have anything to really compare. Uh
2: huh. But what two- we do
1: have is awesome. Yeah, and what we do have is fucking great. Bachwinkle is, you know, like, I think he's, like, the smartest wrestler ever. Like, I think he's an absolute genius. I think Billy Robinson is the father of a lot of the stuff we praise now. Uh Nick Navarro and Black Terry are the reason why so many people pay attention to Lucha independent wrestling. Like, Mm -hmm. so, like, those, like, their work isn't going to be discredited, even if, like, even though I don't know what they were like when they were young. Yeah. But for something like this, it does make me wonder and it does make me like yearn to see that see this stuff. It's like, what was a young Nick Bockwinkle like? What was a young twenty something Billy Robinson like? What you know, what were you know, I think I we, we have ideas of what Negro Navarro and Black Terry were doing, but we don't have the footage of it. Same thing with Bockwinkle and Robinson, like there's podcasts, um well have a, um God what's the name of it? An Exile on Bad Street about Nick Bockwinkle that is really great and it Uh goes through his entire career just based on um, biographies, newsletters and all this stuff but I can't see it so it's like it sounds awesome and I would really love to but you know I can't also I can't judge and say Bockwinkle was always a great wrestler Uh, (laughs) I can't
2: prove that (laughs) it's sort of funny like um, Frank Defford died a couple of weeks ago and a lot of people didn't know who he was, but Frank Defford was like an incredible sports writer and someone who, who contributed so much to professional wrestling writing and was such a positive influence upon just so much of what I enjoy in sports and wrestling. Um and he wrote this piece called Um The Boxer and the Blonde. Um uh, and it's it maybe my favorite piece of sports writing ever. And like, it's, it's this beautiful story depicting this boxer that we have very little footage of from the forties. And in talking about him with such like flowery flowery language, there's that word again. Um, and, and describes his life and describes his career in such meticulous detail. And, and portrays it in such a beautiful way, and talks about this this one fight he has, and it's it's like called the greatest boxing match ever, and the, the way people talk about it, like there's there's no way you can not believe it's the greatest boxing match ever. Right. But it's like you can't prove it, and so much of wrestling is like that too, where it's it's so tenuous, or it's so fleeting, and it's so it's so dependent on word of mouth or just the way you think you felt in the moment all those years ago. And it's, it's interesting as we move into this, this digital age uh, where everything is categorized and everything is, is kept for safekeeping and you can see everything at the click of a button. It's interesting, like how certain aspects of wrestling are going to fundamentally change uh, due to that sort of thing.
1: The last question I have before we wrap up this episode is something about us growing old and watching wrestlers. And obviously that's what this entire thing spawns from with your uh thoughts watching older Remer Syria, but as we talk as relatively young people, um do you, what you mean watching? Re- do you
2: mean relatively. I'm an old man. <laughs>
1: I mean, you own a typewriter, so like you may be some kind you of uh,
2: own a typewriter
1: shape-shifting uh, monster. <laughs> but as we get older, and as we continue to see our own favorite wrestlers and like get older, retire. Same thing with athletes. Uh, Tom Duncan recently retiring. Kobe Bryant mm-hmm. retiring. Do you think Peyton that's, Manning? Yeah, Peyton like, Manning retiring. Yeah. Um do you think for you that's like a reflection of you getting older too that's a reflection of your sure. mortality because obviously we get so attached to these athletes entertainers and musicians <laughs> that as we get old uh-huh. like we tend to be getting older with them like yeah you look look with come I always say that because of where I'm from and because of what I was into at the time. That all these um, popular rappers right now that are all in their 30s, I was listening to these dudes when they were in their early 20s. So I was listening to Drake and Kendrick Lamar and Big Sean and Wale and J. Cole and Big Crit when they were mm-hmm. all like getting off the ground. So for me, a lot of the stuff that I base on how old I'm getting is the fact that these guys are now in their 30s. And... Maybe that's, like, a weird way to look at it. But the fact that I've seen all of their rises, and eventually they're all going to have to fall off. But seeing it, I think, puts in perspective, for me at least, how much life is changing around me. Mm -hmm. So do you think wrestling does the same thing
2: for you as you watch performers get older? So, like, um... My favorite American football player uh, is Ray Lewis. Uh, terrible person. I'm going to get that out of the way first. 100%, Probably... 100% a murderer. Almost certainly murdered 99.9% yeah. a murderer. Like... Bad, bad man, Ray Lewis. For some reason, though, I love him. I love him as a football player. Uh, it was so fundamental to, like, I mean, look, what... You, look, I'm from Baltimore. Like, if you say anything <laughs> totally. about Ray Lewis, is like... Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Um, like he just played the style of football that I just really love. And when he retired in 2012, um, it really hit me hard. And it was like, it, it was a big deal to me. It was the first time like anyone I really liked in sports just up and retired. Um, and it really reminded me of my mortality as like, uh, an 18 year old. I think I was during that year. Um, last year, last, March, I think Johan Cruyff died. Uh, Incredible Dutch footballer, Um, probably one of the greatest footballers ever. Like behind Pele, I I can't name more than one or two people who would be ahead of Johan Cruyff. And he was someone I watched a lot as as I was first getting into soccer and into football. Um, And his passing was like such a heartbreaking thing to me to see, like this old man who was. Who was so instrumental in changing the way that the game was played, and was so talented and, and such a sweet old guy, to see him pass away just because of old age is it was heartbreaking. Um, it's and it, it reminds you of your mortality, and it and it depresses you in a lot of ways, just because like things changing is is a traumatic experience. Like the act of change is is trauma, and to be reminded of that is further trauma and in wrestling i think it's interesting because you have the opportunity in which to explore that sort of theme um but also to to tie it up in a nice little bow to to explore it but also highlight uh why things are still okay to to highlight like why performers are still incredible when it's a performance and not so much um an athletic competition in which there's only so much you can do at an older age I think wrestling is so incredible because like as people get older to a certain point, like there's obviously an upper upper limit to to where this will be successful. But as wrestlers get older, like they have the opportunity in which to explore that aging process and tell stories um, related to it, but to make them come out with happy endings as opposed to the heartbreaking ones that I find in, in actual sports.
1: Brock. I want to thank you again for coming on, even though you're probably like the unofficial official co-host of the podcast. I'm not sure.
2: We talked about this for months.
1: <laughs> no, I'm not even sure what you do here. I'm not getting paid. No, no, you're no, you're not at all. I'm still waiting for Chad to mail me my chat. No, man. But, Rock, I want to thank you a bunch for coming on for the second time in a row, which,
3: mm-hmm.
1: unless you count the list episodes, I'm not sure I've done yet with ones that actually explore yeah. different concepts. But Brock, where can the people follow you on Twitter if they don't already?
2: Well, you can follow me on Twitter at NotBrockYonkey. That's spelled N-O-T-B-R-O-C-K-J-A-H-N-K-E. You can uh, follow my work over at Wrestling With Words. I have a podcast there called Sports Entertainment Shrinks. It's sort of a comedy-driven podcast, but we get into some good discussions there. I also write a lot for Wrestling With Words. I should, around the time that this goes up, have a new uh, article out that I will not spoil. Um, And uh, yeah, it's about it for me.
1: And you can follow me on Twitter at QT underscore Moody. I wrote something for the first time in a while. And it was about the Kenny Omega versus Katsuchika Okada match from Dominion. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not going to be the only thing I write. I have other stuff um, in my mind, other ideas. I'm not sure which one I'm going to do first, but there will be more writing for me in the future. Good. obviously keep listening to psychology as dead because I do think there are some very, uh, intriguing concepts that won't, it deals a lot with how we live right now as wrestling fans. Uh, huh and in 2017 and being someone that's very, being someone that's very much in the middle with a lot of friends that are young and a lot of friends that are older. I feel like, uh, being able to do an episode like that that focuses on how we consume wrestling now sure should be quite the interesting lesson whenever that comes about so be on the lookout for that thank you all for listening we'll be here next time
5: If it doesn't, well, then you're wicked. Such is life. Artists egg McMuffins at night. No answers, so let us watch these dances. Structural form, gracefully being born on the pallet of dark grays. Concaves and spirals, kaleidoscopes into an eyeful. It ripples, then it titles. Vacillates, then it virals. Babylons, then it bibles and others. And tell me of the spinning mothers. And today's mathematics for belovers and beast bellies covered like the cummerbunds of butlers. How your today
0: can I make what you say?
5: Just to make glass houses, then climb up to the second floors and throw rocks out it. Then expect not a volley in reply, someplace vulnerable like Crowley in the eye. What of the chicken? What is it missing? Is it dry? Did it die in some inhuman conditions so it didn't go relaxed? And attention from its demise pulled all of the flavor from the fat and made it flat and rather lifeless. Well, there's a place that has a stunning turban and more mercifully murdered Pisces. But barbaric, I still the prices. It's rather niceless. Apricot and dices and from our slices. My son will call risotto rices, if and when he's left to his own devices. Well, how is your memory? Is it returning like a lemon tree, the bare bitter fruit of what you meant to me? Or is it slipping like permission? Am I tripping like Phil? I feel I'm gripping with well, maybe the transmission. Still left out the life, also left out of the wheel. Grief, would well, cheese never touch your teeth? Maybe like kosher beef. Is it real? Is it real? Is it real? Is it real? Uh, uh.
4: Can I make
5: you my prayers I want you dear? Oh, I want you dear. The hell I can raise to the heavens makes the countries fall. I can see more. Yeah, I can see more. So glad you're back, but not glad at that you're glad. Where is the glamour and collapse? We're in the shatter of the fact Shoves one back to a pattern of stab wounds Swoon written goons Consumed and driven mad soon The Italian slowly fills with bad wounds And other monkey business Where killers go free Cause the junkies a funky witness Running mascaras from the cunning mass Wearers of death by gone errors. Sitting like two oil derricks Separated by a sea of cooling num-nums Reminiscing of our everyday plain humdrum. We're recognition when unnoticed uh-huh. and then solidified till it was stoic. We should have been poets, somewhere between amateurs and grandmasters of iambic pentameter.